when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. What's good, Internet? It's <laughs> December 2022, and you are listening to... Wi- it's the 30th. It's December 30th, 2022. Uh, Picado, I recorded another podcast that I might need you to edit, so that might change things. Who knows? We'll talk about it after the show. <laughs> you are listening you to Waypoint Radio. We had what a do you mean? <laughs> you are listening to Waypoint Radio episode holiday 2022. <laughs> Again, we'll circle back. God, we'll talk about what the story is after the show. Give a Rob talk to some mice and you make a secret podcast. What are you talking? Apparently, this is what's happening. Some like an interview opportunity arose. I seized it. (laughs) Sue me. Uh, I'm joined by Ricardo Contreras. Happy holidays. It's it's you know I proposed this interview concept to Rob ages ago and then you grease the wheels a little bit and he just won't turn down anything he just <laughs> he just won't stop recording interviews. Go. That was Patrick Klapek. Next, it's Renata Price. I, I, I like interviews. <laughs> Excellent. You should listen to Waypoint Radio. We've got lots of them. So it's uh. the end of the year. It's time to discuss game of the year stuff. Patrick, you had an idea for how we could uh, structure this conversation to maybe make it the most productive and also get to the most definitive game of the year list possible. Uh, Yeah, so we've done this a lot of different ways over the years, uh, often relative to the size of our staff. Uh, You know, (laughs) if you go back to some of the stuff that Waypoint was doing six years ago, we had very, very ambitious theme do you want do you want to watch Austin Walker overwork himself too much? Well, then go look back at some of the themed stuff that Waypoint was doing uh year, years back. Um this year, uh, you know, we have gotten away from this is my way of making Rob do a top 10 list, even though Rob has tried his best to get away from doing a top 10 list. Um, I still like the exercise of having to look at the year that was and scrunch it down to a list of 10 games as a way, uh, kind of a mental exercise of what did mean the most to me? Why did it mean something to me? And, uh, and then kind of working through, uh, those thoughts. And so, uh, knowing that Rob will not write a top 10 list, I devise a podcast in which I can get one out of him. And I can't remember where I, this is not like a new format, but I, uh, it was on a horror podcast where they're doing a top 10 list. And I liked this approach to it, which is that we're going to, we all have a top 10 list, uh, of, of our favorite games of the year or however they have put that away spoilers 
Ren? You can't <laughs> read my cursive handwriting with I red I just, pen I reversed. Be pure. I want to be pure. Um, and I probably could. Uh, I could probably read. It. We are going to go round robin. Uh, <laughs> and being able to read cursive. <laughs> if uh, let's say you know whoever, let's say uh, someone says uh, Ren says Signalis is their tenth. It won't be. That's probably like one or two. But if let's say for the sake of argument that it or I no in this let's say I said it was tenth. Uh, and then I would go around the room and I would ask, does anyone have it higher than that? And Ren would say, probably yes. And that would mean we don't talk about Signalis. And the, 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 the idea is we don't talk about a game until we've reached the highest that it is on any one person's list. The idea there being, when I've done like top 10 list discussions before, you end up having the discussion when the game is at the bottom of someone's list. And the higher it is, it means more to someone else. And by the time you get to that, it's sort of like, and my favorite game of the year is this. And I already said why I liked it an hour ago. Um, and so this is kind of a way to structure it so that we can have those conversations mm. uh, around that game meaning the most so to an individual person. So these lists needed to be numbered. Yeah. Great. Okay. Listen. I mean, it's called the top 10 list. You can, you can look at top the numbers in your heart. Top 10 means 10 that are in the top. No, it fucking doesn't. <laughs> no, it no, doesn't, Kato. No, listen, Kato, you have the numbers <clears throat> in your heart. Do I have numbers written on this book that I'm heart? not going to turn to the camera? No, I don't have numbers written in have the book, you but seen do I know Goli the numbers lists? in my heart? <laughs> yes, I do know the numbers in my heart. Top 10 list just means 10 games. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> That's literally every single Cody list I've ever written. Well, actually, no. There, there was one year I, I numbered them. Oh, except for the time that I didn't, but the that's every time. other thing that I've done. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. No, the number is important. The number You can do whatever you want. Yeah. So you can do whatever you want when you write your list. And this list may change for me. I'm actually going to write one. That's what I'm doing tonight. Uh, it's one of the last things I'm doing before I'm on, on break. Um, you can structure your list. I'm going to write mine in August <laughs> when I've had time to ruminate on the games that came out late this year. Nice. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, <laughs> So it's possible that like the list that I write, maybe it'll it'll shift um, between now and then when I've had a couple of beers and then I see what my heart truly sings to me um, as I'm as I'm writing it out. But I don't have uh, kind of do you do we have, we have a do we have a randomizer we could use? What what have we used in the past? We need to put four names in and one come up with an order uh, for this. Uh, Let's go with who's cleaning up the most mouse shit today. Ren, you and me. Uh, I would say like. Like probably like four or five little Random little mouse droppings. None. Uh, I have None? not cleaned up any mouse. Okay, how about this? How about how about not? Okay, how about not rat shit? How about who Mike, has thank you very much. dealt? Who has dealt with the most amount of rat corpses in the last couple of years? Rat corpses. Or sorry, mouse corpses. Mouse corpses. Okay, that's what I meant to say. So, right. so I'm assuming Rob. I'm assuming you win, right? Number like, one, Rob. Yeah, and then Ren, you've discussed it. Many times recently, Exterminator still counts. Doesn't have to be you picking it up, but it sounds like that would put you. I've only I've only dealt with one mouse corpse. The war is um, not going well over there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the war is going well in so far. How many as have you only, seen? How many mice have I seen total? Yeah, I there has been th- four mouse sightings. Um, mm-hmm. at least four distinct mice. Uh, mm-hmm. Occasionally, we see them mm-hmm. a few times. Uh, I have removed a mouse corpse um, okay. that was not killed by a trap. Let me be really clear. That mouse died of natural causes underneath mm. my roommate's bed. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I think a... that the mouse couldn't get out. I think the mouse, uh, I think they the radiator turned this. on and the mouse, then the mouse was like, oh, fuck me. How do I get out of here? Oh, man. 
Uh, even when you and have, they just died. If you when you That's have traps grim. that are supposed to kill them, somehow they find a way to die in a different, more difficult to find place. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Alright, Kato, do, do you have a mouse count? Uh, depends on how far back we're going. Cat kills count. Uh, kills nothing count. in the past, nothing since the pandemic, but like 2017, 2018, we had a problem and I got, we got up to like the five, I think was the total corpses. That's about, that's about where I am on. Uh, yeah. I've had nothing during COVID. I have to go back like three years yeah. and I, I had five or six. And so, um, all right, I'll just take up the rear. So we'll do, we'll do, we'll do, we'll do Rob, Ren, Kato, Patrick. So Rob, what is, oh, and also the second half of this will be, uh, or at least whatever time we have left um, in the recording, people sent in a bunch of categories for us to assign a bunch of things to. And so we'll we'll get to those um, with the time we have left after this list. But Rob, what is your number 10? Marvel Snap. Does wow. anyone have Marvel Snap higher than 10? Kato is figuring out in real time if they have Marvel Snap no, higher No, it's than not on 10. my list. Didn't make it. Not on your Honorable list. mention. Honorable mention. Yeah. yeah. Ren? No, I'd never played that game even a second. No, not on my <laughs> list. All right, Rob, why Why did you like, what was a, how did Marvel Snap sneak into to the, your number 10? Did it snap your heart? Wait. Mm. <laughs> Rob, are so, you okay? <laughs> so, I guess, like, the big part of it is Marvel Snap gives you a really good, complete, often dramatic game uh, within the space of about five minutes. And the hit rate for like really good games or really tense finales is really, really high. And part of that is just the structure of the reveal of the three, the three zones, the three tiles you're, you're playing across. And then the other part of it is, of course, the as the metas evolved and new ways of cards have, have sort of come in, you know, the danger level you sense as the game goes along the 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 sense of possibilities that are in play that you're trying to figure out like what is this person intending to do what could happen here uh on turn five on turn six it's going to tip this entire thing uh that is it consistently generates really fun uh dramatic moments in that game but at the same time it's a dramatic moment you can have literally while you're waiting for like water to boil on the stove or while you're like in the middle of a commercial break uh, during a football game. And so I think it's a real achievement to produce something that, that's that engaging and rewarding and also that sort of short form. Uh, the, the other part, I, I do have to concede the whole snapping mechanic, that little bit of like, I'm going to put a little wager down on how <laughs> I think this game is going, really adds a little something. Uh, when, when, when you snap and you're like, all right, I'm all in. I think I've got you. Gambling uh, is good, actually. <laughs> a li- who doesn't love a little flutter? Stakes. It's stakes, right? It's like it's 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 stakes beyond just the thing that is in in front of you. And and although yes, you can build a deck until the every, randomness. Go ahead. Until every motherfucker out there retreats the second you hit snap before turn three, it's just like, come on, play it out, play it out. I want my money. <laughs> I just think it's interesting to have sort of a layer of stress and weight to a game that is completely divorced from what is happening on the field. And and then in that way, it is on the field. Mm-hmm. So it's not a card that determines the win or the loss. And yet its mere presence has a psychological effect on yeah. the player, probably how they play, how they approach a play. And that's just really fun. That's, that's a really neat addition to a game that probably would be good without it. Um, and it's just better with it. 
it 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 really they've like hit a like really excellent uh kind of point of like semi-consistency with like the size of the decks like you only have what is it 20 even less no dude it's, I, I think it's, it's 15? like 15 <laughs> no, no no i think it's 16 or 20 i think it's it's in between there i forget exact number but it's so few that oftentimes you build a deck around a single like perfect combo but you have enough little pieces in there that can still like thread out like okay i'm not getting my perfect combo this game but i'm getting a still a really like good combination of cards and and a good line that i can play to the end of this um and, and the deck size feels, is just big enough that yeah. you feel like i can maybe do two things with this deck maybe and maybe, maybe you can you, you there's a temptation <laughs> to be like i can do a multi-class deck yeah maybe i have a little backup plan over here yeah <laughs> um and like there are different there are definitely certain synergies that like dovetail nicely with that sort of thing um and it's like yeah, they've they've really distilled cards, card mechanics down to like the most oh God, bite size we, I've seen them. Like we overestimated wildly. It's a twelve card deck. It's twelve cards. Yeah, it's so it's small. It's small. Um, but you I know, think that speaks to the fact that you don't know that <laughs> offhand, despite the amount of hours you have both spent in yeah. that game. I think also maybe speaks to, uh you know, sort of like the breadth of what the cards are maybe capable of. Yeah, it where feels ima- like there's so much. You're imagining a larger deck. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, because of the way that the the card effects tend to, like, play out, it can feel like you're playing, you're like, you know, it's just like some some days I know exactly what I'm playing, turn one, turn, like, three through six, it's all in my hand. And some days... I'm praying for something to like come into my hand next turn. Be like, I hope, I hope there's something there. And given that it, the card pool is so small, it will happen, right? That's sort of heart of the cards. Like you're you're trying to top deck something because you're only at twelve cards. Like you're gonna top deck something. It might not always be the best thing, but at some like it it recreates that feeling of like kind of desperation so often in a way that ends up more often than not being playing out well where in other games where like you know obviously you have a bigger size if your deck is inconsistent and you're trying to top deck something you can have games where you never get that one piece that you're looking for and it's just like yeah. oh, that was a bum game this one feels like you never have a bum game because of that sort of mechanic even though you're still drawing into things and it still has that tension of i might not get the perfect draw this game but it I can feels still like get really a well engineered. usable draw yeah it's really engineered to force you to consider where's your off ramp for waiting for that card Right. Yes. Like, like turn three or turn four, you really have to like, am I go like, cause usually there's enough flexibility that there is an alternate path to win or at least be competitive on the last turn where you're right. not sure how it's going to go. But then there is the winning strat that like, if the, like, if the things you are waiting on show up in the turn five and turns, turn six draw, then you will, you will clean house. Yeah. My, and yeah. My current deck is uh, that I, I really love is a move deck, which has a, the, the six drop is a Heimdall, which takes every single card on the board and moves it one space to the left. Um, and then all the other cards in between are cards that happen like when you move, double this power. When it moves, it gets plus power. Like it, mm. it's all like effects that happen. Like when something moves into the space of this card, it gets plus two power. So the whole point is get everything set up and then shift everything at the last second. It'll throw off what people have been building because most other people who aren't playing move decks 
once you play a card in a space, you're kind of stuck there. Like you're building onto certain board states that you like, you know, you kind of know what the state is at six. And it's more about how big the numbers can jump in that last turn where this also plays a kind of placement game. But if I don't get Heimdall, there are enough like small utility cards where I can individually shift one or two cards each turn where I could still pull off all of the movement combos that I want and still feel like I got a value out of those cards without my big combo set piece at the end. Um, and that's really, really neat. Like I have um, a card called America Chavez, which is a card that you always draw on turn six. That is meant that basically just like makes it so that everything else I, it, it basically makes it a, an 11 card deck, which means I have more likely to draw into those 11 mm-hmm. cards before the last turn. Mm-hmm. But so if I don't have time yeah, by five, I'm going to get Chavez on six. So it's just like a big card, but it's just, it's just a big card that just has a number on it. That's it. Um, yeah. So it's just, there's lots of things like that, that like really like efficiencies that you see in other bigger games that still feel impactful despite how small and quick this game is. Uh, I have a question as someone who has not played this. Um, does it feel as a card game more reactive than a lot of card games? Because when I think about um, card games broadly, there can often be a feeling of like, in addition to like the luck element of like, oh, I just didn't top deck, that like you are building to a foregone conclusion, right? If both people have built good decks, like whoever's deck happens to be the best uh, against the, who, who wins the rock, papers, the deck rock, paper, scissors, or does this feel like it is, there's more counterplay you can do after once there are cards in your hand. I yeah. will like I, I will say this and then we should probably move on to the next the, the next pick. But I think my my answer would be like there are games that are certainly like that, but I think but because of the way the, the three zones change the game and the different like viable decks that are out there right now. There are games where you definitely have a very, especially like from the initial deal, you can almost see like, okay, it's going to be a very programmatic game plan I'm going to run here. And then there are just games where just because of the the tiles you're fighting over and then the cards that show up on that first turn or, or two, you sort of end up in a much more like creative, uh, like ad lib mode when it comes to playing the game. So I've never felt like it it stays in in one mode uh, or the other it sort of it, it sort of asks different things of you game by game mm-hmm. yeah it, the, the last thing i'd oh go ahead kato yeah i was just gonna say that uh to reiterate that like the 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 sort of placement mechanics like it feels like you know you're, you're trying to suss out where your opponent is building and whether or not what they're building is going to be a lane that is going to be huge or it's just going to be kind of a small lane because so like in that, just in like the main of there being three lanes that you're playing into mode is like, okay, you already have to take into account what, you're, what, you're, what your opponent is doing in order to outplay that. But then there's the added thing, like Rob was saying, where what the lanes actually do can affect how you react and how things change over a game. There are things that will change what the lane is doing, like cards like Wanda Maximoff will change the entire lane. Like they'll have a different power all of a sudden. And then maybe mid game, you're like, well, shit, actually I should shift my focus to a different place. And it, it definitely, it fits a lot into the small package. And it's kind of mm-hmm. stunning how they've done this. Uh, and the last thing I'd point out about it uh, is just that and I know this is like a very low bar, but that game could be so much more exploitative of its audience 
than it is. Mm-hmm. And I think on some level it should be commended. Who knows where that, that monetization will go in the future, but they made a really good game and they could have really squeezed people in a much different way. Yeah. And the way they've talked in interviews is that like they acknowledge it. And like an early version of this game, the beta had way more of that in it. And it was way more uh traditional exploitation of like sort of like digital uh, kind of mobile card games. And they backed off from that. And I hope it gets, I hope it gets kind of rewarded as a result, both not just critically, but that it can prove, Hey, you could just make like a game that treats his players with respect uh, and their wallets with respect. And also you can make decent amount of money along the way. Uh, Patrick, we can, we can do that rewarding on our own. We can give it the marginally less exploitative than other free free to play games of the year. award. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations, Marvel snap. You've won it. it. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Ren, uh, who has won in your heart the number 10 slot on your list? The number 10 spot goes to Dread Delusion, uh, a game that I played uh, about like, I think like five hours of, uh, and I has just really stuck very firmly in my memory. Did anyone else play any Dread Delusion? I thought you were just going to truck forward, just being like, I know this is not anyone else's. I mean, I know it's not on anyone else's, but I didn't want to be rude. This was the, this was like the kind of Elder Scrollsy uh, like fantasy RPG, right? Yes, am I, am um, I correct? By the Dread XP folks. Mm-hmm. So the folks who do the Dread X collections made um, or published a uh, Morrowind. I th- the best com- comparison point is Morrowind, a Morrowind esque uh, fantasy, dark fantasy, dreamlike fantasy RPG that uses a a really well done. Um, low texture resolution, uh, lower poly aesthetic, uh, and uses it to craft some pretty phenomenal vibes. I think that like the thing that I love about Dread Delusion is it's not its combat. It is not any given quest. It is not any particular moment. It is just the undeniable vibes uh, it is able to, to create. There is a phrase that I have been thinking about in that game for the last six months. There is just an offhand book that you find in that world that has the line, we butchered library whales. And I have been thinking about the phrase butchering library whales for mm-hmm. six months. Like it is, <laughs> it is, it is lines like that that are just like sprinkled through and like a world that is so evocative that like it, it immediately cements itself uh, as, as like a really special game from this year. It's currently in early access and it will be growing into something more. And I'm so excited to like return to it once it is like fully featured and has more of those like Morrowind-esque weird spell combination moments. Um, it's it's just, it's sick as hell. Um, extremely metal. Uh, and I think there's like a real joy in casting a spell that reduces fall damage and throwing yourself off of a sky island. That is <laughs> sick as fuck. It's, it just rules to like have yourself hurtle towards the ground like that. I like that games like this, I think Signalis is in conversation with it in terms of, uh, and this happened to pixel art games, like a nostalgic throwback games, where for a while, boy, it's just cool to see the aesthetic come back. Like, ah, that's fun. And then what you realize is, well, at a certain point, that can only go so far, and you need games to imagine to take that. It's not nostalgia, it's an aesthetic, um, just that one was uh, morphed by technology and make something new around it. And I think we are getting to that place with past pixels and into polygons in a way that I find really, really exciting. Yeah, I mean, like the the specific aesthetic that it's going for is incredibly well suited to dream logic. 
and like evoking dream spaces. There's, there's, I think that there's actually no art style that is better at doing this. It's why I loved Silent Hill, playing through Silent Hill recently. It is why I loved Dread Delusion. It is why I loved Gloomwood, right? Gloomwood is another game that uses um, a slightly more refined, right? if it takes this aesthetic, it moves it forward five years to uh, beyond the uh, original Deus Ex era into a uh, slightly later early 3D era um, and uses it to really, really effective ends of creating games that incorporate dream logic not only into their mechanics and to their narratives, but also into those aesthetics. Everything feels just hazy enough that your brain wants to fill in the worst details possible. And I think that it's been used to like tremendous effect. Uh, and Dread Delusion is probably my favorite example of the aesthetic being used to those dream logic ends. Excellent. Uh, Kato, hit us. Uh... They didn't do it. They didn't finish. See, this is. I always knew that Twine game was a coward's way out. I always knew it. Oh, I couldn't. Oh, it's just a little journey. Oh, I couldn't possibly sort these out. What a waypointy way of engaging with games. Don't make like value judgments or say I liked this more. Here's just a bunch of games. <laughs> wow. Um, oh, I'd like to report uh, murder, please. <laughs> Fuck. Um, it's gonna be an end. Kato's end of year review from Rob. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm trying to decide because I have too many. I still have too many too. Is the thing. I I miscounted and I have eleven. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you're gonna. Have to, you can figure that out in real time. You don't have to cut that down now. You just have to pick ten and then just know you only have nine slots left. You know what? I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make slot ten two games. Uh, no, 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 but this, no, it, this no. works. This works because they're both. No, the, no, the let, same them, let them speak. <laughs> let them speak. No. How does how, how are we doing this? Kata? How are we getting two games into one one space? Because they're both very similar games because they're both Pokemon games because two Pokemon games came out this year. That's and the whole maybe, point of the exercise. You got one of them one should of those. have. <laughs> Pokemon Legends Arceus. You could just say it's Legends Arceus. And Pokemon Violet. There's nothing wrong with leaving it off. You don't have to put the other one in there. I do because then now I have 10 things and one of them is two games. (laughs) I see through your lies. I'm going to let you explain this, but I'm only recognizing Arceus as the game on your list. You can can interpret your list however you like. It's Waypoint. let Let you be you. But canonically... It's 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 Arceus. So expl- explain why <laughs> game parentheses s my Pokemon close parentheses. Yeah, uh, why that's ten. Uh, I I'm think, most surprised it's that low. Frankly, is is uh, my honest answer. I think it's because it's because they have to be melded in my mind to be to be better than they are individually. The thing is, I really enjoy, I did really enjoy Arceus. Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Is it possible that these are the 20th and 15th best games of the year? And you sort of add them (laughs) up to say that they kind of make a 10? They still make it into the top. They're not in the other list, but individually I couldn't place them above other things, I think. But together I could. So because it's 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 broken, I put them together and put them at ten. Just to be fair, they would be higher together. Maybe if I like, you might hurt their feelings (laughs) if you didn't. (laughs) The other list is the like honorable mentions. It's the rest of the games that I played Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, stuff. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
that's where uh, Marvel Snap ended from you down there. Okay, so why did you why did you like Pokemon? What did you like about Pokemon? Or not they, like about this, Pokemon? This is the this is the year that Pokemon went and figured out a lot of like living in a 3D space and like actually using that to a good end, other than like look, we can turn the camera around and it looks really bad when you're in our 3D space. Like, Sword and Shield was the first, you know, Switch one, and it didn't deal with its 3D areas well. Um, it had uh, kind of a poor story. I was mostly down on that one. RCS comes out, and I feel like I understood suddenly what the track was and felt, like, more acutely for the first time in like following these games that the schedule is is hurting the franchise (laughs) like people have said this a little bit like from a design standpoint in previous games where some of the like pokemon does i feel like there were so many coming out at such a clip that was like some of these pokemon are kind of mid and that's fine but the games themselves ended like as long as they were on the 3ds like they were fine. They were mostly bugless, and like they looked good. And then we move into the Switch and 3D era, and like they've been really struggling. Uh, Arceus uh, kind of proved out though that they can make a really excellent game that really pushes the like fantasies of Pokemon and like the having a bunch of friends come out with you and in, into the wilderness to go on adventures like that really really hit home super well in Arceus and then Violet but it did it in a very kind of hands-off way almost there was um a very sparse kind of campaign and um it was very side quest heavy and like those parts were fine because like mechanically what you were doing is just existing in this open world and going through all the different areas and like catching a lot of Pokemon like you do in Pokemon games Violet kind of builds on that, but as I, when we talked about it, like, you know, a couple weeks ago or whenever that was, um, it loses some of the, like, excellent mechanics that Arceus has because they, like, you know, they add in a bunch of, there's a lot more, like, of your traditional Pokemon story in there, a lot more cutscenes, a lot more uh, NPCs to interact with, a lot more, like, this is a world where Pokemon and human are living in tandem together where in RCS it was like it's open wilderness and like you just go out and have adventures and like there's very little human interaction. Violet is back into like, you know, there's cities, there's towns, there's people and side quests to do in that, in that sense. But they stripped back on some of the, um, uh, mechanics where you like let Pokemon out of, out of the Pokeballs and the way that you would capture Pokemon by just throwing Pokeballs at them from RCS that, I felt like really made that uh, that game shine in a way that other 3D Pokemon hadn't. And so I just realized like, you made a big mistake. Huh? Did anyone else put two Pokemon game higher on their list? Mm. <laughs> yeah, come on. Yeah, come on. What are you? <laughs> did, did anyone else even play uh, these games? Yes, well, I played like, Arceus. I played okay, Arceus and okay. I liked it a lot. Okay, okay. I mean, it seems like... The, Did you put the, it on your list at all? No. Yeah. Some of what can be explained here is, like, I think with a lot of the Pokemon fandom, like, reading through the lines is a lot of problems with both games, but tremendously excited at where the franchise is going. Mm-hmm. And so 
in some ways, like part of the reason I've wanted an excuse to try a Pokemon again. And with the response to both games has been, I think I will be better served to waiting for gen two of both, of both of these, <laughs> right. but I'm extreme. Like it shows a lot there. Whereas we seem to have reached the end of the road other than just new inventive character designs or what's the new mechanic. Oh, they get really big this right. time that like, they're just sort of road had run oh, out. This one, on. this one was good. They turned into crystals. Like right. Swarovski right, we, crystals. But it's nice that you're doing that in addition to it, what surrounds it, that. It's hilarious. It's hilarious too because it's actually one of the most like uh one of the most impactful that one of those bonus things has been. Because when you change it into crystals, it changes the Pokemon's type, which is a thing that you don't fucking you don't fuck around with Pokemon oh, that's interesting. types. Yeah, so you could have a water type that like when it crystallizes it turns into a fucking ground type and has a ground type move all of a sudden and you totally flip on like someone who's like ha I've got you on the type matchup and you're like surprise motherfucker no you didn't um <laughs> and it's the first time this, that one has felt really that impactful in that way <clears throat> like the other ones you're right it's just like they kind of get bigger and, and like stronger vaguely but haven't don't have that like kind of strategic layer to them as much yeah. Now, why can't we just get a remake of Pokemon XD Gale of Darkness, the best 3D <laughs> Pokemon game? <laughs> I'm asking the real questions. I can fucking rules. You can steal other people's dogs. You can just take them. Yeah, that's 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 only only mean evil people do that, that in the horrible. Pokemon world. No, 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 no. Listen, like listen, it. listen. Uh-huh. No, no, no. If you if people abuse their Pokemon mm, and they become mm. shadow Pokemon, you're allowed to steal more, allowed more to steal them. Right, right. In Pokemon right, right. That's a really important distinction yes. when someone yes. says the phrase you can steal, steal. <laughs> their pets. I mean, you it is let's be really clear. It's more you're like a bar f- rescue situation. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's just like bar rescue rob. Patrick my uh, number uh, t- a 10 game uh, is uh, Kranken's Time Travel Adventure. It was a game for the play date. Um, came back, uh, came out a lot <laughs> earlier else this got year. A, anyone else got a play date? Anyone else got a... I don't think anyone has uh, a, I know uh, no one else even has a play date. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm good to go on, on that front. Um, and uh, it's, I am a, going back decades, like around the time that, uh, I got into games like Dance Dance Revolution. Uh, it sort of unlocked. I really enjoyed games that I, I like goofy peripherals. I like interacting with games in novel ways. I, I think the controller, while an incredible invention of interaction, has mostly stagnated in terms of it's just assumed. Yeah, I guess this is just how we interact with games. The popularity of console games also means that it has dragged the keyboard and mouse to essentially function as a fancy game pad. Um, there are games that are exceptions to that rule, but it's really just uh, the gamepad has come to be the mode of interaction for video games. And I'm always interested in games that challenge that assumption or or try to move it in a slightly different direction. And and the play date does have D-pad, it does have buttons, but the the most the most interesting games are ones that try and find a really practical use for the crank that is on the side. And uh, and Kranken's Time uh, Travel Adventure, uh, which uh, comes from uh, the designer from behind uh, Katamari Damashi, is that you have this these puzzles, and you are you are turning the crank in order to pr- to move this character through this puzzle. And so, like you'll have uh, objects spinning past you, things you need to jump over, and you can't actually. There's no jump button. There are a predetermined animations that this character does 
The other things are happening around you. And it's based on how you crank that forward and backward that you manipulate that predetermined set of animations to move through this world. And I mean, there were times where I like, sometimes that's slow and deliberate. And other times I'm on the couch, like hooting and hollering as I'm turning this crank, (laughs) trying to get this character moving as fast as possible to a sea of bullets. Oh yeah, just (laughs) cranking away. Uh, And I just found that captivating. Um, I never quite got to, to the end of it. Um, I, I played like four or five hours of these puzzles and then kind of just hit the point where I was good. Um, but it's it's really delightful. It's really interesting. It made me curious uh, that the playdate could be something more than just a cute little uh, device that sits on my desk. I mean, that's now granted that is just what it does. Now it has a layer of dust that is right behind me and I haven't charged it in a while. Um, but Wait, I'm anxious to get back to it to see if go ahead. I was going to say, isn't aren't there like regular releases or that end? Already? So there's, there's a way to like download games to it. They are, they are launching a kind of a, a proper shop um, sometime soon. I think that might be the instigating kind of incident to get me to, to jump back in to see what else is going on. Um, Cause I know the people have been doing lots of really cool stuff with it. I just haven't sat down to actually jump through the hoops, but uh, yes, Crankin's time travel adventure joins a long list of dances, revolution, rock band, Samba de Amigo, uh, Sega bass fishing <laughs> uh, games that I uh, get real joy out of uh, interacting in a different mode than hitting the A button. And so that is why it is my, my number 10. And that brings us back around to number nine, Mr. Rob Zagney. Anyone else get really into rally racing this year? It was no. the year of motorsport after all. <laughs> wow. Anyone? Is this, is this WRC? Is this, yeah. Is this this one? Yeah. Uh, so it's a like. As I mentioned before, this is the end of the line for the series. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a series that is being taken over by Codemasters, and the cool thing is, like, this is a series that has been pretty well like refined over the years, and the this this sort of final entry, I would say both this one and the last game, uh, which I think was nine, were really generous offerings, and so it's it's kind of like it feels like a really incredible compilation, uh, like release for a band you just learned about right because i because wrc has been going for a while um from i think uh kratom or 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 whoever it is um who who is this again i just forget um i can look up the developer yeah but it's been going it's been going for a while it's it's really it's really well regarded um and uh, i think kt games uh that might be that might be it um yeah clioton games K-Y-L-O-T-O-N-N. It's a French studio. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, it's been been going for a long time. It's been really well regarded. And here it kind of feels like they've got, uh, you know, a ton of the stuff that they've been doing for years, really polished to the the best version uh, of itself. And there's so much in addition to a pretty involving career mode, even though I'm not sure it's like terribly well designed. Um the way the career mode works is there's an entire team management aspect to it. And there's a almost RPG skill web you unlock to upgrade your team that gives you useful bonuses during races. I I would say, and I alluded to this before, it feels very much like, um, like 
early iterations of mobile game design in some ways where like it's just kind of course bonuses and which bonuses are you going to activate it's not like terribly interesting but it does it does pose the the odd uh decision for you and it does give you a little bit of a sense of like building out your team but i think the 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 real treat here is like it is such a pretty game it is such a good game about like driving really dramatic roads and I know it's it's funny to say that because, you know, we have now Forza Horizon and Need for Speed has gone this direction, the open world racer. But I think so, one of the things you encounter with a lot of those like open world arcade racers is that in some ways, because they're so tuned to just kind of let you go flat out and make the map effectively frictionless for you to traverse you know, even the most dramatic roads, there's there's not a sense of like, wow, this is really treacherous uh, driving. Like, really, you really got to be sure footed on this here. It it does feel a little bit scary in that way that, um you know, sometimes if you're on a road trip and you just end up not on a major highway and you come to a, you come to a, a, a road somewhere in the hills. that's like it's not a highway and it's not totally kept up and it's not like there's not a ton of like runoff or shoulder space. And you think wow, like if I made a mistake here, that could be quite bad. Or if someone is coming around in the wrong lane, that's that's quite scary. Uh, you know, th- this kind of has that that little sense of of danger for, for so many of its maps. And they're really long. And so like this is this is a game where you will have the experience of like white knuckle driving for like 45 minutes uh, going flat out across incredible like, you know, incredible like countryside from around the world and there's just not there's not a lot like it uh and there is there there are so many locations or or it seems like you have that's like relegated to games like forza motorsport in which it's like you mentioned like the lack of friction like that's just meant to be it's beautiful do whatever you want like no consequences like have a great time it just seems like that's where that mode of like bigger open space game yeah. has gone, predominantly dominated by motorsport itself. It's not like there's like the huge uh, crowd of games. Or Horizon, Horizon, correct. Yeah. Um, uh, even trying that, Horizon is kind of the the one that sort of marked away that that space. Otherwise, you have I games mean, like Need for Speed Need Unbound is clearly trying to crib from it a bit and, yeah. and successfully. But I think they both have this feeling too of these are both games where if you're like ah, it's kind of a long drive to get to a place, I will simply point my car at the at the marker on the map and just straight line over the countryside and by and large, the game will let you do that because your car, you know, will go flying, you know, over hills and Dale. And there's just, there's, there's no sense of like obstacle to a lot of, to a lot of the way these games are structured. And that's kind of the trade-off they make is they're like fantasies of, uh, you know, infinite and self repairing countryside uh, and like, you know, whipping supercars all over them. But at the same time, what kind of goes away is a sense of distinctive place when it comes to the road or the car. And WRC is like the opposite extreme expression uh, of that. And I think that's one reason why it, you know, last year I, I didn't play enough of of nine uh, a year or two ago that to really make me like uh, to, to fully win me over. But but generations got me there, uh, you know, and, and certainly it's probably being inflated a bit in my estimation by my. uh regret or uncertainty about whether I will like the Codemasters take on this uh, as much as as this one. But I think predominantly it is just it is such a it is such a cool vibe uh, and it is such a it, it is such a like 
huge coffee table book of racing game uh, that I that I really dig it. Extremely cool. Ren, your number nine. Number nine. Last call BBS. Does uh, Kato, do you have last call BBS on your uh, list? Yes. Uh, what number is it? Don't. No, 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 no. It's just if it's higher. Okay, it is, is higher. higher. Well, yeah, it, it is has higher. To be okay, because <laughs> well, I know, but I if it's I guess you can reveal if it's eight. But you know what I mean? Like mm. I think let's leave some mystery yep. on on where where, where how yeah. how high it, it. Uh, managed to climb. <clears throat> uh, okay, well then we table uh, last call BBS uh, and we move to Kato. What is your number nine? Uh, <laughs> is it last expected? call BBS? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it's um, card shark. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Congrats to card sharks ambivalent. Uh, 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 nine ranking. Th- yeah, flipping through a Rolodex over here. No, is, sorry, I, was, I was putting lab- fucking a card shark. Shit. Um, it's it's card shark. Uh, um, who made this game? I forgot. This was earlier. It was published in the year. by Devolver. Yeah. Um, and but I wanted to shout out. I'll look it up. While yeah. you, I'll look it up while you. Uh, was just a great. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Game set. And kind of uh, enlightened in France, where you play as uh, a, a a person, uh, basically, uh, what's the word for it? Apprenticing on an apprenticeship with uh, a con man, and the two of you go through like noble England, uh, conning rich people out of their money with various card tricks and various other types of bamboozles, and. Um, it's just really fun. It's got a really great art style and the, 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 it's, it's fun the way that they like mapped the kind of motions of, uh, kind of shuffling cards and, uh, uh, jogging a little card so that it's slightly off kilter from the other ones to the like, uh, sticks. Like it's, you know, um, always one of those things where you, uh, it's obviously not the same emotion that you would to actual shuffle a card, but it's like it gets that mechanical feeling of it down close enough. And I'm like, yeah, I'm shuffling all these cards. I'm like rifling through all the ones to find the one that has the little um, bend on the corner or whatever. You know, it's just it's just a very well uh, executed and very funny and uh, charming game about conning rich people. <laughs> It was from the the studio that did the the Reigns right. series of games. This is Her Majesty. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a Game of Thrones spinoff, um, and then I think Reigns Beyond was my, the the most recent one. Well, anyways, when uh, when I watched you play the demo, and then you ended up playing the final game, I always wondered how far did you get? Did you get to the end? Like, no. How did things? No. I I, I got. I don't know how far through the game I got. I always wondered how the stakes went, like how the mechanics evolved, right. like what is the culmination of a I game. I mean, they just keep adding uh, like new, they kept adding a lot of new, like different variations on things. And then like also different combinations. It would happen to be like, oh, we're going to run plans two, eight and 12 for this, this session basically. Right. So like you had, sometimes kind of a choice like which one do you want to do first for the first round of cards and like you move on or like sometimes it would just be like um uh you have to do it 
over shorter periods of time or with harder timers and things like it would kind of be variable. It wouldn't, it, w- it wasn't like a straight kind of, um, upward, uh, uh, um, trajectory. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for about difficulty curve, I guess. Uh, it, it, it mm-hmm. would, it would, um, uh, yeah, it, it had like, it's, it's less uh, like the tricks, the tricks became more com- like complex as they went along as much as there were just more of them. And, and right. And there was, there was kind of a, like there, they did, like end do up nine hundred things to solve the final right, puzzle right. in it's more in like the game. doing a lot of them in sequence, like different ones and like different mm-hmm. ones that are slightly similar. Like there'll be variations on so you can go- goof up. Like, the like, oh right, no, this is the one along. where I'm supposed to do it this way and not that way. Uh, <laughs> like things <laughs> like good. that. Yeah, it, it was very good. Um, I think I got about halfway looking at the like how long to beat and stuff. So, um. But um, it was the one thing. Part of the reason it's it's lower is that because it was a little too difficult to get back in after I left. Yeah, <laughs> I bet once you lose once you lose the institutional knowledge, and like, of I'll replay that part someday and like finish it off because it's not that long of a game. So like, it was just like between that and then also like whatever had happened next at that time in the year. I was like, okay, well I'm just moving on then instead of finishing. Well, it's all repetition, right? Like yeah. there's a, it's like a little bit different than, I don't know, getting back to an Assassin's Creed where it's like, where's the stab button? Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh no, like the only way this game works is that if I have really, really specific understandings of the timings. Of the, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is kind of, you know, obviously that makes it more difficult to get back into, but it's kind of neat yes. that the game doesn't function without you sort of in, adopting the same, kind of mechanics and persona of someone that would be doing these similar doing these trick cons tricks. and learning them. Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, card shark. Great, great fun game. All right. That leaves uh, to me. My number nine is the quarry. I had it higher. Oh. Okay. <clears throat> we will leave the quarry uh, to later. And that Rob, that just goes right back. To My number eight was number the quarry. <laughs> Well done. <laughs> well done. All right. Well, I, I will let you take the take the take the floor. Why why did the quarry end up on your list? Uh you know, I think we've seen this executed to varying degrees of, of skill. Uh, but this is like the this one stands out as being a really like this term like savvy but like it plays around with stock characters and the and the the prototypicality uh of of its setup to really really good effect but doesn't become completely like a meta commentary on this genre of horror like it still gives you really like sharply drawn characters some really like authentic and and well it loves the genre right it's not like there's a difference between being satire to make fun of it as though you're being condescending the quarry until dawn are the most successful like versions of what uh supermassive is doing in which it's you can tell it's people who deeply love the tropes the stereotypes like <laughs> and then or at least understand them and appreciate the genre at its core and then in some ways want to help you appreciate it even if you're not necessarily like on the inside or like a genre fan but it comes from a place of love as opposed to a place of mocking yeah, and like I think there there's so many things that work really well in it. I think uh you know the 
<clears throat> the way it deploys soundtrack is is really well. It makes a lot of a lot of moments land. There's a lot of really terrific performances and very funny uh, characterizations throughout. I think it probably would have landed higher if that ending hadn't been so abrupt, mm. and if the game kind of hadn't turned into the Laura show effectively at the expense of kind of all the characters and relationships it painstakingly sets up uh, in the opening couple hours of the game, but playing, playing with a group and, and sort of, uh, you know, seeing all these, all these characters come together and, uh, you know, get beneath the uh, superficial layer of the characters where they, where they're just pure archetypes and, and getting more into who they are as individuals was, was really, really rewarding. And that's before you get uh, to the deputy who is like just an, <laughs> an incredible performance and character. And as much as I'm like, Oh, I don't like the way it be- totally became the Laura show uh, by the end that mid game shift to, we're going to revisit these two characters who seem like the two no name teenagers who just get got at the start of so many horror movies. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that they become integral to the entire story. And the, you know, Lauren, the deputy end up, like being like this is where we we get the entire backstory on on what's going on here. Uh, I thought that was such a such a cool move that like it, you know, ultimately it undercut itself maybe a little bit toward the end. But I think that mid game gear shift uh, where it sort of brings all these different threads back together was also just really impressive for me. I also just think that these games and the quarry especially do a good job of. So often when you play games with choices, you can feel like there's a finger on the scale from the designer or they understand that most players are going to play the good character and that there are other options. But like we sort of know where the story is is going. And I think in the quarry, there it wasn't oh, it didn't it wasn't like the, there were usually only two options, but they didn't feel like binaries in terms of good path, bad path. They felt as though their character nuances and you're not always sure what the consequence of that is going to be, Ren. Well, yeah, I think like the strength of it is that like, it doesn't go, do you want to hurt this person you care about? Right. Do you want to, do you want like, cause I think so many games about choices, that isn't the option, right? Do you want to hurt this person you care about kind of out of nowhere? Or do you want to be the dick in this situation? I think all of the choices in the quarry that actually ended up meaning something we're like, how do you approach this situation? Which is such a more interesting question, especially with a game with pre-written characters, right? If you're talking about an RPG where you can make your character, then the question of like, what do you do is interesting. How do you like what is your response to the situation? And instead, the quarry is like, okay, we know how we know how this character is going to broadly What's react the vibe? to the situation. Right. Are they going to run or are they going to hide? Are they going to go up this path or are they going to leave it alone? Is, is, is a lot more engaging for this specific kind of story than I think the, do you want to save your friend? Because like, yeah, of fucking course you do. That's silly. Right. That's, a, that's a dumb question. And instead the game consistently asks the more interesting question of, do you try to fix this fuck up or do you keep going? Yeah, and uh, one of the reasons, you know, if you look at sort of the theatrical landscape right now, like what's making money? There's two things. It's... Big blockbuster, usually superhero fair, and it's horror films. Um, I am someone that like normally is a stickler about like wanting people to be quiet while watching a movie, and so like I'll prefer just watching it in like with my wife. But certain types of horror films are made for a group experience in which there is a playful aspect between the viewer and the and, and what you are watching. 
And slasher films are a, a great example of that in which the all, the whole premise really is that you're there to see who gets got. And the idea that like the quarry and these the series has leaned into that audience play to that group dynamic um, in which you're kind of, you know, like nudging. You're like you, you've got your canon for how you want the story to go and you're kind of nudging your friends, hopefully in that direction, because they're controlling this character and you're not. And like that kind of fun debate uh, kind of plays out. I like that in in many ways, this series understands not just on a writing level, but on a like play level of how it is literally played by the, the folks involved, understand why horror is so popular in communal settings. Um, and in an era like right now where people are desperate for co- like community, that horror is one that is cathartic in what it is giving you on the screen when done best and that you can be around other people to experience it together amplifies that catharsis. I think the two best moments in our in our stream series of the quarry, um, at least in the last few record uh, last few streams we did, were the moment where uh, Natalie shot the uh, <laughs> grandmother. Uh, it, it, wild moment. The, the look on everyone's face was incredible. And then the moment where uh, Rob shoots uh, Chris and then Kato immediately unleashes on everyone being like, why did you do that? And like, when I think about that moment, like that is the point that you're making Patrick is that like the totally different interpretations of how the rules of this setting work and also what these characters would do coming in that like explosive moment of not just asking why did the character do this but why did you rob do this is so is so fucking good and also the fact that they were wrong like the fact that like <laughs> that was Kata was incensed about the wrong choice is incredible it's like joyous to me that we got that moment and that only happens with this communal horror setting i think um you know, these games like have a lot of DNA, like share between them and choose your own adventure uh, books, for mm-hmm. instance. But, you know, if you if you remember playing, if you remember like reading or playing around with the choose your own adventure books, they were kind of designed to be like macabre death simulators and like to make you you pick what seems like the innocuous option. It's like, haha, well, that was exactly what you shouldn't have done. It turns out, you know, the other path was was much better. And, you know, one of the things that I'm st- Starting to get about this series, but I think it was really it was, it was really pronounced in the quarry. Don't overthink this. Like this is a, like the, like the funny thing is like it's kind of it feels like when the quarry's like it feels like dramatically everything is leading up for you to do X. You should probably do X. Yeah. Like I understand where you're like, man, this game is like, oh shit, werewolf, huge confrontation with the with the werewolf family. It wants like here, the, it's right in front of you. It's it's poised to attack. And I understand where the temptation to be like, and that's just what the game wants you to do. It's tricking you. You shouldn't shoot this wolf. You'll discover this was you shot the wrong werewolf, or you needed this one to get the alive to get the good ending. But I, I kind of appreciate that the games aren't setting those like horrible traps for you where it's like doing the thing that like plays well in the scene, uh, you know, will somehow blow up in your face. That's generally not what's happening. Uh, in general, it's like, Oh, this is going to be a sweet moment. And it is. They aren't adversarial. Yeah. Right. Like this is not an adversarially designed series. And I think, I think that rules, um, because it also lets you occasionally make the bad decision. Cause you're like, I think this will be really fun. And like, <laughs> 
that is the, the making the bad decision because you think it'll be fun is so much more engaging than making a decision you thought would be good and then being fucked over for some stupid yeah. reason. Um, oh, God, what a what a fun I mean, I, like this conversation is making me like, OK, maybe it is higher than number nine. <laughs> <laughs> but that is that is where it is for me right now. Uh, for me, it was Ren. Eight, so now we're on Ren. We're on Ren's eight. Yeah. My number eight is Hyper Demon. No one else. No. That's fine. No. Hyper Demon, the sequel. How about we do it this way? Because I, I feel like in, there's like this moment of slight disappointment. It's not anyone else's list. No, oh, that's not. If nice. just launch into like, I'm going to start talking about the game. Mm-hmm. And if you have list, it on your list, break in. you should Great. interrupt and be like, that's on my list. Okay. That's, right. I'm just, just mildly changing the rules. Yeah, Go on. Proceed. Hyper Demon fucking rules. Uh, it is the sequel to Devil Daggers. One of my favorite games uh, from a few years ago. I believe it came out in 2016. Um, and Hyper Demon imagines a world in which the first person shooter uh becomes something totally radically different follows a totally different design path uh and instead of um you know the uh the second coming of call of duty and the slow shooter and then the movement shooter and all of these things what if it was quake all the way down what if what if what if Quake was made by the weird by the biggest freak you've ever met and, and set in the worst version of hell you've ever seen? Hyper Demon manages to um, it's just the mechanics are so simple. You are in a big arena. It is a black void. You shoot d- daggers at demons. Also. You can see in 180 degrees. I was going to say, you say it's simple, but the also comes with like a thousand caveats because when I loaded up this game to like try and like, you know, let me, I know I must talk about this. I'm going to play it for 20 minutes to get my, wrap my head around it. And then I went to the section that's like, here's how the mechanics work. And I went, oh my God, because there's, yes, you run and you shoot, but then underneath that is like a, like a near fighting game level of subtlety to what is happening moment to moment that you maybe wouldn't perceive as a observer, but is very important to you as the player. Right, exactly. And that like, it turns into this like incredible dance, like that level of, of control and, and mechanical complexity or not mechanical complexity, but like systemic complexity, uh, as opposed to like the actual controls being complex, um, is just so engaging. Um, and, and unlike anything else I've played, uh, in a really, really long time. It is just pure sensory overload, and in doing so, gets to this, like, point of, like, sublime joy, if you do it right. Um, the thing I compared it to earlier in the year was Anton Artaud's Theater of Cruelty, uh, which is this, basically, uh, uh, conceptual theater project wherein this uh, playwright was like, I think that people should go to plays where we put a star in the theater and then it breaks open and it was full of blood and teeth and it falls over the performers. And then also there are scorpions on stage and they walk around with the goal of confronting the audience with so much external stimuli that it completely basically shattered their conception of what the world not only is but what it can and should be such that it would radicalize them into communist political action do i think that's a good idea no (laughs) do i think it's fascinating yes do i think hyper demon takes that energy and is able to like 
materialize it in a video game? Yes, I do. It is it is so sick. It's uh, it joins a long list of games that uh, I don't want to play, but I wish had an attract mode that I could just put on my television screen. <laughs> and I know that, yeah, I could I could find a YouTube video, but that's not the same. And yeah. I just wish more games had. I just want to <laughs> see this sick shit on screen playing off to the side like I've got the news on. Um, and I because just looking at it is astounding. Yeah. All right, Kato, your number eight. Um, my number eight is, yeah, so done it. Uh, my number eight is Neon White. Uh, first person. Uh, I'm gonna raise my hand. Uh, oh, damn. Neon Wait. We'll wait for neon another day. Wait. Wow. Neon Wait. <laughs> neon Wait. You're number seven. <laughs> no, it's you, Patrick. No, it's Rob. It- Oh right, it, it, you're right. You're right. No, you're no, right. no, no. It's yeah, my number eight. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah is it? Is it Patrick? I'm yeah. I'm getting confused. My not yeah. My number eight is a uh, tunic. Um, the Zelda style uh, adventure game uh, that uh, was the most I felt like I was playing Fez since I played Fez uh, so many <laughs> years ago. You know, it's a it's a game where you you open you wake up on a shore. You're a cute little fox, and you've got a stick, and you got to fight enemies and it presents this very simplistic, nostalgic adventure for an older style of action adventure games uh, that maybe doesn't exist as much anymore. And look, they've put a unique aesthetic on it. And what you find is that in Tunic, nothing is what it appears. Um, Mechanically, uh, aesthetically, uh, in terms of world and story. And the real joy is discovering what the game is not, it's never lying to you, but it's obfuscating quite literally everything. And it is up to you to put together those pieces based on what it tells you, based on what you can guess at, based on what uh, you can just sort of theorize. Um, You know, the, the most, one of the most novel things the game does is there's an instruction manual that you're collecting new pages uh, for as you play the game, but it's all in a language you don't understand. It's real, you know, it's a language that, you know, can be deduced. Uh, the audience has done that, but that's not what the average person is going to do. The average person is just going to look at this nonsense and it's styled as the original Zelda instruction manual. It's got the cool illustrations and there are like whole ass mechanics that every other game would be like, oh boy, we got to sit down, make sure the player goes to a safe arena, seize the buttons. Maybe that'll be on a little post because that'll explain what the buttons are. And we'll put a cute little message that explains why we have to put this language here explaining a mechanic and break uh, kind of the fourth wall in the game. Tunic says rejects all of that. Um, and even though it has sort of this meta layer to it of an instruction manual, um, you are just like looking at this and wondering like, what is it trying to say about these bombs? What is it trying to say about these items? You'll pick up a brand new weapon or item class and you just don't know what it does because you have to use it to find out and you might only have one of them and it's clearly a consumable and you're going to have to hope you get another one and use it correctly the next time Uh, and the game just kind of cranks that up as it goes along in a really delightful way um some of the kind of the, the revelations you get as you go along in tunic are deeply satisfying uh some of the stuff that involved its true ending kind of went beyond me, but I felt satisfied enough with where I, the ending that I got in the game and then sort of looking up where it can go from there. If you choose to put in the extra time and effort, but it's got a gorgeous soundtrack. It looks amazing. 
It's really smart and mysterious. Um, and as someone that often plays games that are a little more straightforward and who really enjoys games on a mechanical level, uh, I always like when a game can kind of, this doesn't quite hold my hand. It does the opposite, but kind of drifts me in a different direction. And I, I find myself satisfied, uh, in a totally different way. So that is tunic. My number eight, which takes us to Rob's number seven. So my number seven has ended up being Marvel's Midnight Suns. I am. You have been all over the place on this game. (laughs) Yes. You have been. When we first played it, like, wow, this seems kind of interesting. Then you played a bunch of it and went, I don't know if I like this game. (laughs) And even the, the kind of like critical analysis like review that you wrote sort of landed with i still don't know how i feel about this game i want to like it and and yet i keep seeing your like steam notification pop up as you spent more time with it and so i have to, i have to say i'm genuinely shocked that it's on your list at all and so like how far are you into the game and then how do you end up landing at it being one of your favorites oh god there's like uh, I feel like I'm pretty far into the game. Like I would have said that I have finished act one and I'm like well into act two. And then somebody was like, well, have you seen the act two card come up? And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, like this is, this is a, this is a huge, uh, game. <clears throat> and the so we were talking on the podcast earlier today. Uh, we recorded the, the the last regular podcast of the of the year earlier. We were talking about uh, triangle strategy, which I didn't like, and I sort of said it was the it was the goofiest to Marvel's Midnight Suns uh, gallant. But here is here is the thing that uh, I, I think caught me out. I didn't think the tactics game felt particularly good to play. Um, at first, and even now, like I can respect what it's doing. I understand that, like it generates a lot of interesting turn order conundrums. The tactics game side of it is is more interesting than I get, gave it credit for. I'm still not sure that I feel that it like it it feels amazing or that. Do you hey just before you continue? Do you think if Marvel Snap didn't exist, you would like it better than no? Like no, you don't think that's any I don't, impact I don't on think it changes okay. it at all. Okay. I think mean, it is just other card games gotcha. uh, that that are sort of in the picture here. I so like in terms of how that comes together, the the sheer amount of um like crafting systems that are running in the background of this to to generate new things for your characters. Like there's a lot of like stuff that feels a little bit like Croft, and like even at its best, like I can appreciate what's happening in in the battle system, but I'm not sure I'm in love with it. The thing, and I, I sort of started lock in for me in my review process is it's, you know, what is important to a game can kind of be judged by what it emphasizes just in like over the course of a session playing it. And if you look at that, the battle system in, in Midnight Suns is more like an action su- sequence resolution uh, engine. Hmm. And then the rest of the game is a story engine. And that's that's what it's actually concerned with. And the other thing that it is very good at doing here is um, it's very easy to get like hyper isolated 
uh, these days, especially like whenever there's a COVID surge happening, you know, it's like, can I hang mm-hmm. out with these people, et cetera? Uh, you know, I think there's, you know, my, my wife and I talk about like the, the, the submarine, uh, you know, the feeling of, of, you know, how, how we live and, and the, the, the texture that, that days have. Midnight Suns is like its core premise is you live in a dorm with a bunch of adult peers and you hang out and that's and th- and that's it that's most of the game now there's a lot of dramatic shit going on there's 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 life issue shit you're working through but like <laughs> it is resolved in the like you pad out of your gorgeous little dorm room you go into the common room where there's a cool bar hey, and Dr. Strange out. you want to watch a movie and then people are like hey there's this thing I want to talk to you about and sometimes it's very corny it's just like answer one thing but sometimes it's like you'll see a cool little scene play out between these two characters and the writing on that stuff isn't a, isn't like amazing. It's not like I'm sitting here being like, you know, it's Guardians of the Galaxy level good. Uh, the the game that I that I think uh, you and I really adored. Pat. Wow, that is that is hyper because I think that was the the worry going into this was th- that game at least has the advantage of being short, shorter. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. and and much more. Uh, I don't know. Just, it had less of a box to have to play around in, and this game was like, what if the word account was six times yeah. as high? And and it doesn't hit the same highs, sure, but it's probably doesn't have to by sheer diversity of character, right? And yeah, and, and it's it's consistently good enough. Yes, because of that, because there's so many different mixes and matches of characters that you put in a room together and like what what side of the 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 marvel world they're from what what generation of superhero are they uh there's that kind of stuff in play the other day um galt had asked me whether or not i i recommended it and i sort of gave the precy of my review but ultimately like gun to head i was like uh, i i do recommend i do recommend it because it is such a such a charming goddamn game and you know, a day or so later, he texts me back and he's like, "This this game is a warm bath." And sometimes you want a perfectly like warm bath. It is really nice to sort of fire up this game and be like, "I'm going to go and enjoy this little this little world where I hang out with a ton of cool people all the time in a home, in a beautiful home with no mice." Uh, and I can I can swap outfits and 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 decor for the entire for the entire mansion and all the characters, and so it ends up being a really cool like superhero stories playset, and it carries that off well enough that it ends up being a really singular experience not just for this year but I, I kind of end up in a place of like I don't know that I can name too many games that are like this because. Is recognizably not like doing visual novel stuff exactly either. It's it's in a different space, and you know the the obvious comparison was like Fire Emblem Three Houses, but that's kind of you just you run around and you collect conversations. That's kind of how it feels. Mm-hmm. That's not how this feels here. This feels they do a much better job because of all the bantering that is happening all the time, whether or not you are there, that you are in this like giant dorm full of other people living their own lives and forming their own relationships. Uh, And that is, that ends up making it a really, really memorable game. And then the rest of it is good enough to support that. Right. It's not like the, the combat system 
is good enough that I'm like, oh, this is a cool battle and not, oh, shit, I got to go fight a battle. And then I can go back to the real thing, which is the story. Mm -hmm. Does it feel like these relationships? Is there is there like are they ever represented in those battles, like in play? Right. Do you ever get to see the two characters who have built a really strong rapport inside the base that you can then build combos around. Oh yeah. That's how they reward you uh, is there's five tiers of friendship and the tier one, two characters can be like tag up and drop a nuke on people (laughs) beyond that. Like tier three, like, like tier three, tier four is uh, just like Hulk levels of destruction. Uh, the the two the two bros can t- can unleash, but that's that's kind of the whole thing. Is the game constantly is like, man, you can just keep becoming better and better friends, uh, and and become even more powerful together. Is 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 this game good enough at doing this that it has it has ignited an existential angst within within you about how we about how your own life and and like social situation is organized? Is that is that the level of success that that Midnight Suns achieves? Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's more. I saw this, I saw a thing. Um, yeah, I was going on Twitter earlier this year about like why are people nostalgic for college? Uh, it's not because it was college. It's because it's a time where people sort of live together communally uh, in a walkable space that is designed for their needs. And I think this game kind of understands that on the, on the same level of like, you know, it's this, this cool fantasy of so much of a a adult life, like pulls people in different directions and kind of, kind of atomizes us uh, from our, you know, from our cohort. And this is sort of a fantasy where instead of that, as we sort of, become ever more our complete adult selves we sort of coalesce uh mm-hmm. in a space together and become more of a more of a society uh which which is interesting it's a, it's a fun fantasy yeah excellent i'm looking forward to uh this is to add like proper steam deck support to that soon also rob did you see that thing where like you disable the 2k launcher and the game like runs twice as fast Wait, oh really? no i didn't i'll send you an article but basically like, the launcher is responsible for stuttering frame rates have i mean it's well, i don't it's weird shit um please, so i'm wondering if i disable that it'll run better me. on my my steam deck yeah i will i will i will send that along um all right ren your number seven hard space shipbreaker is probably one of my favorite games full stop i just think it's i think it's a really cool a little thing right is a I first played it and wrote about it back in it was one of the first things I wrote for Fanbyte. So now two years ago. Um when it hit and, early access for the yes. first time, right? And the thing I wrote about it at the time uh was this is before its its story was in there at all, uh, or the first glimpses of its story were in there. Uh the piece I ended up writing was talking about the ways in which Heart Space Shipbreaker, through its mechanics, finds a deep and unabiding joy in the act of doing fulfilling work, right? It believes wholeheartedly that you can derive enjoyment from and fulfillment from the act of labor. And in doing so, draws attention to the ways in which that is taken away from people by actual systems of capital, the actual like institutions and power structures that make people have to do labor and have to do labor in specific ways take away that joy. And so I ended up writing this piece that was like, I think that the only way 
that this game's construction of labor and, and understanding of both mechanically and like narratively can go is to become a game about labor action and unionization. And I was right. Uh, that that was a that was a that was a, a complete swish uh, on 2020 Ren, uh, in correctly guessing that that is what Heartspace Stripbreaker would eventually be about. And so now, fully released in 2022, Heartspace Shipbreaker is still able to provide that joy of doing satisfying work well. Um, it is. It resembles for me the best days of being a barista or a housekeeper when I was able to forget about the actual like context of the work and focus on the act itself. And I think that Heart Space Shipbreaker kind of combining such a engaging and fun mechanical system of breaking down these massive ships and being able to do so creatively and involving like complex problem solving and requiring an understanding of how these ships function as ships. It's just tremendous. And I really, really loved um, seeing it come to a conclusion this year. This this got knocked off my list, but I had it on here for a while. Not this game, but Power Wash Simulator, um, which uh, is not a game that is trying to say a ton about <laughs> labor, but in its mechanics does so uh, anyway, even if it's not necessarily <laughs> outwardly leftist. But the the act of just cleaning, like when you're talking about just the like the function, right? Like the satisfaction of doing an act of labor like especially physical labor and doing it well and enjoying that act. Um, Power Simulator got, scratched at that, but also the joys of the kind of jobs that I had when I was a kid, uh, like at the the movie theater or the grocery store, where you spend most of your time sitting around talking to people while you're doing different forms of kind of like uh, manual labor. Like even it was just you know cleaning out and doing a popcorn machine. And you just talk to people in a different mode. Like the way you, you talk to someone that you work with standing next to them for eight hours is so different than the way you talk to anybody else. And like Rob and I, the, the streams that you and I did with that game, like reminded me of that. And it's just like, you just got like, we're just here. We got to talk. <laughs> like, we'll just figure it out while I'm cleaning this roof. Um, and you know, that's operating <laughs> obviously very differently than what, what uh Space Shipbreaker is is accomplishing. I feel like those are they're playing in similar spaces and I got a different kind of satisfaction from Power War Simulator, but obviously like one that feels of a mind uh with with that game. I think, you know, the the funny like to be honest with you is like they they're simulating two such different jobs. And I don't just mean like one's in space, one's it's like Power Wash Simulator reminds me of working at the grocery store. Uh especially when I was a cart boy. And you like basically the guys who run around the giant sprawling parking lot and go collect the carts that people have abandoned mm -hmm. in the Been ditch. There. <laughs> yeah, etc. Um, and it was like, you know, there it could be unpleasant on a hot enough day. It was it was it was pretty damn unpleasant. But like for the most part, it was the most shit shooting job I've ever had. And that's kind of the space that the power wash sim operates in. And that was also in my uh shout outs uh you know li list here. Hard space, I, I do think. Because it is just, it is this mix of intellectual and physical engagement. I think it ends up like simulating a, a slightly different experience of a job, like something closer to a, to a craft or a trade. 
uh, where it's like every job is a little bit different. You know, it's not it's not quite a se- like there's assembly line aspects to it, but no two jobs are exactly the same. Like so, like even if you see the same ship, it's like, well, this sh- ship was used for uh, like, you know, they've got different modules on them because they were like used for different purposes. And I think that 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 sensation of starting to get better and better about like knowing where to carve up the ship, but also little things of like really internalizing the exact inertia a thing is going to have once you put it underway and knowing like when you start being like, I've got two things that are drifting away over my shoulder, but they're not going anywhere fast enough that I have to worry about them. I'm going to finish doing this thing and then I'll corral them and fling them in this other direction. Like when I was playing that uh, in, in early access, I, I loved that sensation of like growing confidence in the ability of like I can now hold all these different pieces together and I know what's happening with all of them and I can start to set myself longer in order order of operations like task lists rather than immediately scuttling from like one thing straight to the 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 uh the dumpster you're using for instance and then right back. Yeah, I think that like one of my favorite moments uh, of playing this game this year and, and playing this game with someone else this year was uh, a stream we did uh, that Kato and I did together where I tried <laughs> to explain to Kato how to disassemble a thruster. Uh, and there was this moment where uh, if you're trying to disassemble a specific kind of thruster in Hard Space Shipbreaker, it is going to be on fire. You are going to light it on fire and you have to just trust yourself to turn on your boosters let off the thrust and pull and just drift through this actively melting down thruster, right? You get to the end, you pull a lever and it's fine. And I think watching Kato do that for the first time in the absolute unbridled terror they experienced of trying to fly through this fire and like trying to scramble around. And it was like, no, 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 no. You just have to trust yourself. You just have to take this cap off, push yourself through, and pull the lever. And, like, gaining the confidence to do that and gaining the understanding of these ships such that you can do what looks outwardly like an extremely dangerous thing with complete calm is just, like, I love it. I absolutely adore it. It's a bit like of the video of the two uh, oil workers just covered in like drilling fluid, slamming <laughs> things around the bit. Like if in, if that was like a good game instead of cringe amateur hour shit, uh, that's kind of hard spaceship breaker at its best. Uh, yeah, it, it, like that that growing. The way you sort of learn on the job in a really convincing way, too. I think that that's the other thing is it's, it's like so many games try to like layer in new information, but like a lot of games end up with this feeling of the endless tutorial where it's like, and now do this mechanic. Uh, Hard Space, the other thing that was kind of impressive there is it does have the feeling of like a job where one day your supervisor, who's really been like closely monitoring you, one day is like, you got this. Like, you know, if you run anything, let, let me know. But Here's a bunch of stuff. And you think I'm ready for that. And then immediately there's five things that you <laughs> don't fully know. But you do have the means to like figure it out mostly. Did you play through the game story mode now that's been finished, Rob? Uh, no. So I only played like the first act. Okay. So that becomes explicit both narratively and mechanically later on. There is a sequence where your uh, your on-the-shift supervisor is teaching you how to do things. We'll have you take a test ship and we'll walk you through step-by-step step in the process. And then, uh, later in the game, management becomes more um, 
uh, starts applying more pressure. And during one of those training sessions, the manager comes on the line to your supervisor and says, you don't need to explain it. Just let them do it. Whatever. Uh, and there's the moment where the mechanical act of you have your tutorial taken away from you by this manager who just wants you to do the fucking thing and has no idea how to do it and is convinced that they do. And like that the game un not only understands how it teaches you, but then uses its understanding of how it has taught you to this point to create this moment of narrative and mechanical tension is, I think, really well done. I think that, like, Hardspace Shipbreaker's actual writing uh, is inconsistent at best. I think there are moments where it really lands. I think there are other moments where it very much does not. But the narrative design and the way that they have integrated narrative design into its mechanics is really incredible because it is able to evoke all of those feelings um, really, really well. Uh, and it reminded me a lot of like working in machine shops when I was in high school as like on a robotics team or all of these other places that I have like really, really fond memories of. All right. Well, Kato, take us to number seven. Uh, my number seven is Last Call BBS. Ooh. Uh, All right. The the final the final Zachtronics game. Um I have really enjoyed um uh Zachtronics games in the past. Specifically they're more like coding based games. Uh really enjoyed um uh, uh than E. I should know. Exapunks. I know. I would, oh, yes. Thank you. I was going to say Ava Punks. I'm like, that's not right. Why is that? <laughs> that's not right. That was the tie-in DLC. <laughs> the for, yeah, for the Evangelion and then Exapunks crossover. Um, so, you know, this this release is a, a little bittersweet thinking that they're never going to come back around to, to, to that specific thing. But uh, having them go out... Uh, on their kind of own terms and with this specific game was really, you know, really, really a fun thing to, to be able to experience the setup being that you've, you've received, you received a computer essentially that has come, um, uh, has access to an old BBS where you're downloading old games, uh, that are all in the kind of vein of various electronic, uh, types, you know, and, you know, starting with your classic, there's a solitaire in here, which I've spent way too much time playing. Uh, um, move, uh, there's actually two solitaire games in this one, which is great. One that you unlock later that's <laughs> even more complicated. Um, uh, but they have your classic uh, kind of programmatic uh, gameplay that you expect out of uh, Zachtronics in its various forms, but also kind of presented in this really great, kind of like nostalgic almost like like someone's telling somebody else a story through these different games and the story of like a very specific time and place in in computing and in like on what online was you know in the early early 90s when bbs's were still a thing um that also kind of speaks to that just kind of looking back over the Zachtronics like library, the Zachtronics as a as a as a game developer and like 
that their time, like knowing that this is their last game, obviously that, that, that tinge of like nostalgic kind of, uh, bittersweetness, uh, applies also to the studio itself in the end. Um, and it's just the, the games in there are all, you know, if you've liked Sectronics games in the past, it's exactly those, they're going to suck you in trying to figure out how to best program a machine that doesn't understand how to cut a chicken in into three parts <laughs> to cut a chicken into three parts uh god what a the 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 food the food the so uh, 20th century it's a it's a very funny game too 20th century food court was definitely i think my favorite where you were programming a future food court that didn't really understand 20th century food it was like like a thousand years in the future or something i forget how many years and they're like they've made a like this is what it was like to eat at a mall in the 20th century so you're making like chicken tenders (laughs) but in the most ass backwards like the machine can produce an entire chicken because that's what the machine knows how to do and so you cut away just to the like the wings and you throw everything else out um because this is the future and scarcity is not a problem apparently they're just throwing everything away uh it's very funny in that in the way that it's like presenting what the future has access to and what it thinks of uh like you know looking looking back towards our time period of food um and also is a very fun you know program puzzle uh ren you had this earlier on your list right yeah Yeah, Um, i mean the thing i love about it is the really the really heartfelt way it melds this like mechanical and like narrative framing device with the actual history of the studio reading the um little excerpts from the person who gave you this uh, computer's journal where they're like oh yeah I just like I remember when they first released this and like this is part of this era of their design history and it's just like it's so thinly veiled talking about how the actual studio feels about itself and like seeing the moments where like the person writing about it is like, I don't know about this one. This one, this one wasn't, I'm not quite sure if this one landed the way we wanted it to. And this like, just really honest approximate, like a really honest appraisal of the history of one's own studio. Because I think that like the key thing about last call BBS is that Zaktronics chose to shut down. Mm -hmm. They have, they made the active decision. Hey, we're done. And in doing so, were able to create a game that lets them look at their own history and be the arbiters of their own narrative and go, not only do we get to say when we're done, we get to write the final history of what this was in this game that you can return to. And in doing so, kind of reveals and unlocks everything else they've made before it. Last Call BBS was my first Zactronics game. And it was a game that was such a beautiful love letter to what that developer was that I had to go back. I started playing Exapunks. I got really into Exapunks and all of these other games because Last Call BBS isn't just a piece of nostalgia. It's a, it feels like a Rosetta Stone for understanding the rest of their games uh, and going back to them. It will be the perfect first step for the moment where you know the MoMA or whoever the fuck puts a Zactronics game in their collection to be on display for people to touch, it should be Last Call BBS, 
or that exhibit should begin with Last Call BBS and then work backwards, because I just think it's a really excellent goodbye and introduction to a developer. Um, it feels like a cover letter, almost, yeah. uh, in a way that I, that I really, really adore, and I think is special. Did you happen? You didn't have. Did you happen to get the special edition? No. It's also another part of it that I feel like is going to be a part I miss. Like uh, Exapunks had a PDF that you could and should print out and like uh, have next to you. They have the, they always had this fun. This they had a couple of times where they had these interesting physical pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and with this one. Uh, the the special edition the third solitaire game no it's it's just like some fun ephemera like um like this on computer paper like order sheet of like this is what this computer costs (laughs) it has just like prices for all of the like cpu and stuff in it and like there's a sticker sheet where if you had a 3d printer which i don't have you could 3D print a computer and put these stickers on it, and it has the, and then you have a little oh, model. Oh, that's of the really computer. good. Yeah, the, like it's 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 interesting how um, I felt like like my favorite moments in some of their games kind of bridged or tried to or were, was interested in bridging the digital with the personal in a lot of ways. Like we see this a lot in Exapunks, not just from like, yeah, you have to print out a zine. You're supposed to quote unquote print out the zine, but also like literally the story in it and how you're, you know, you end up hacking biological, uh, you know, uh, machines in that uh, game. Um, And just like the way that the, the game and this like special edition were all presented. It's just kind of a, a very beautiful way for, for them to kind of say goodbye. Yeah. I mean, it's a series that goes, there is no inside. There is no outside. There is just like the, yeah, yeah. the things we make are the world, right? You, like it doesn't have to be because the, they're, these are games obsessed with things that people make both uh, like programmatically and uh, in, in terms of like, you know, are you coding something, but also like, processes of production and then adding that human element makes it just go there is no difference there is no inside and no outside the things that we make virtual or physical are who we are or how we construct a world and like it believes that that act is beautiful and and worthy of love and care and like honor and i think that rules all right rob you're number seven no you you're number seven. Oh, me. I always, I always keep doing yeah. this. I don't know why I keep skipping myself. My seven is a return to Monkey Island. Uh, I have been a long uh, fan of the uh, Schaefer, Gilbert uh, sort of like era of LucasArts Adventures. It was uh, a huge part of my entryway into PC gaming. It was like on one hand, there was Doom. On the other hand, there were games like Full Throttle, The Dig, uh, Grim Fandango. Um, I, I just <laughs> missed the Monkey Island games. I came in on the third one. Um, but you know, I, uh, Sam and Max hit the road. I, I just, adve- adventure games run, uh, contrary to what I describe myself as enjoying, which is that I say I'm bad at puzzles. Uh, and I, I don't like getting overly frustrated in games that require mental gymnastics. Cause I, 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 I have more confidence in my fingers than I do in my brain. Um, and yet 
I find myself drawn over and over to adventure games that are able to straddle the line between puzzle and storytelling. Um, and I have found the Monkey Island games to always be some of the best at that. And Return to Monkey Island is a really beautiful, it ends up being the end of the series. It's a really beautiful end to a narrative that never quite needed an ending. Like some of the best endings are ones you didn't know you needed. And then when you see it, you're so glad that you got to go along that ride. And I think Return to Monkey Island is a, a really nice cap on that series while also giving it a chance to go forward because it was a success and I would happily play another one of these. But also what it did uh, tremendously well is it has far and away, and I mentioned this on a recent podcast, like in the context of immortality, the best hint system I've ever experienced in a video game. Uh, because so what happens, you know, I've told the story on the podcast before of like loving the Tex Murphy FMV adventure games. Those puzzles were not meant to be solved by humans sometimes. Um, and it felt like the reason a hint a one 900 hint system existed was because you just were not expected to figure this out on your own. You were expected to call and get help. Um, and which is how I ended up racking up, you know, <laughs> charges on my parents' phone bill by calling that for, for various Tex Murphy games and return to monkey Island. But at, at the same time, what you want from a hint is a hint. What is usually a hint is a solution. Mm -hmm. And there's a really big difference between the two of those. Yeah. And what Return to Monkey Island did so, so well was it has essentially a tiered level of hints. And the first one is, is actually just recontextualizing and framing, what are you trying to do here? Here's what you're trying to do. And then if you want more, it gives you a little bit more. And it's always just a nudge. And then if you get to the end and go, bro, like just... Get, get lay, lay it out. You can. And I never had to do that. A couple of times I got past the reframing, got past the nudge, and I got an arrow, but it wasn't the solution. And I really appreciated that. It allowed me to continue a pace with the storytelling that was happening in the game. It reduced my frustration with puzzles that I think were just better designed. You know, they also did a very smart thing of there were different difficulty levels, essentially, where some of the most adventure-ass game puzzles are still present, but they're just not in sort of the, quote, normal mode and that those exist separate. They're still in the game. You can stumble upon them, but you don't have to solve them. And I just appreciated how smart this game was about understanding what do people like about these games, especially if you're someone coming to it having a long knowledge of the genre. Why are you still doing this? Um, and it just seemed to really understand and crystallize what's still special about this approach to making this style of game while acknowledging that it doesn't have to be exactly the way it was. Um, there are ways to sort of update and modernize it uh, that also keep what was so special about it intact. And so uh, I, I, I was surprised how much I enjoyed Return to Monkey Island, but uh, I cannot, I guess I could recommend it more highly. It's number seven. So I, I almost said that, but uh, I do recommend it highly is what I would say. <laughs> And that brings us to now we are at back at Rob for uh, instead of seven, uh, number six. Yeah, cheating a little bit with this one because it did come out uh, a while ago for mobile, but the PC release was this year. It's the first time I played it. It was new to me. Uh, South of the Circle uh, ended up being just a really memorable, terrific little narrative experience. Um, I don't want to talk too much about it because it's not that long a game. Uh, I think it is, is well worth playing, but it is such a. This is the like Antarctic or like winter Arctic Antarctic, adventure game. But also like 
Imperial Decline, Red Scare Britain uh, as, okay. as well. It's like, and that's the Hell funny thing yes. is it, it definitely seems like at first it's going to be like a uh, like Arctic adventure, uh, you know, a, a survival adventure. But because so much of the game's framing is that as your character is in distress, uh, you know, wandering this wandering the wasteland and such uh, so much like past and present begin to blur together. One scene sort of melts into the next. And every one of these transitions is so well handled. Uh, and it is such a, it's a good art style, but the way it has uh, scenes in the past, you know, you'll be standing in one place and then the flashback will end. It will break apart back into where are you now? What are, what are you standing in or vice versa that like being, uh, you know, in a, in an abandoned frozen over research camp, uh, suddenly, you know, that scene will break apart and you're on a, uh, you know, campus quad in, uh, in Britain during, during a protest or something. Uh, all these transitions are are so well and give this game such a, both a, a sense of like real psychological suspense, but also a consistent sense of like place and time, uh, at every turn. How would you say the transitions rate on like the, the example I'm thinking of is like Kentucky route zero where like the hard cuts and like kind of control over like aesthetics are, are so strong. Like those cuts feel really substantial um, from like scene to scene and, and space to space. Does it feel if you played Kentucky route zero, is it like that? Does it have that kind of arresting dreamlike power? Yes, uh, it, it absolutely does. Uh, but I think it is definitely getting, I think it's communicating very well. Also like, the power of memory, the fact that you can all, like you can be in one place doing something totally different and your head will just go somewhere else completely. And while you are on autopilot in the present, you are reliving stuff from the past. Uh, and this like literalizes that and like makes something really, really effective of, out of all of it. Like it's it's a supremely well acted uh game as well the the vo vocal performances are terrific uh if you look at the imdbs the performers like it's not a shock they're all in fairly like fairly prestigious uh like you know bbc uh and and like uh, you know pbs partner uh productions and and such so it you know it's it's going through a lot of like uh really top shelf uh uk character actors uh over, over the course of it but uh it it just works it's a it's a terrific it's a terrific experience and uh one that i was i was entirely cap captivated by did, did it land for you? Like, does it come to like a, a, a strong conclusion, both narratively, but also like, did it feel like the game had a thesis that it was trying to pursue in with this particular setting and with these particular characters? And did it pull it off? Yeah, I think like it is. It feels like a very well constructed game from beginning mm -hmm. to end. Uh, and, and so I think the, the payoffs you arrive at uh does not feel like what's the way to put it it feels like seeds were planted but not in a really obvious way mm -hmm. uh is is the is the way i would put it nice i'll have to play this uh excellent ren your number six my number six is iron lung uh iron lung okay perfect I knew I knew Patrick would have it higher. Uh, <laughs> I knew Patrick would have it somewhere. I didn't know if it would be higher or lower than number six because um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I know that we ended mm -hmm. up really liking it. Yes. All right, Kato. 
Swing away, number six. Number number six. Um, my number six is Betrayal of Club Low. Uh, you loved this game. It's, this has been on my list of ones I wanted to get back around to, and just just did not. But you were you were very wonderful. convincing on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 glor- glorious in so many ways. It is a um, essentially a, a very uh, dice focused RPG. Uh, situation similar to I think the the closest thing that it's trying to kind of riff off of is um uh, uh disco Elysium um but it is a Cosmo D joint which if you've ever played any of Cosmo D's games they're all they've all got this uh very surrealist bend to them and this one uh is uh, no exception, and it really kind of leans into that in its narrative and the kind of different stakes that it sets up for the the like dice conflicts that happen uh, throughout the game. Um, such conflicts as uh, your ability to hold your nose against the smell coming from the sewer grate next <laughs> on the street. Um, uh, uh, there's a pizza making mechanic where you can make a pizza dice and the different toppings will give the the, the dice different sides. Uh, there's um, a, you have the ability to kind of uh, upgrade your uh, statistics kind of on the fly by making money by making pizza die that make you money uh, and just kind of by interacting more with more of the world. It really incentivizes just like fucking with everything in order to like, yeah, that means I'll have more money later to up this if I need to. And like, um, there's this kind of like, it's kind of, kind of runs counter to the, uh, the, um, sort of like you've made your decision and it's very important that you've made a decision in how to enter this space. Um, kind of like choices matter type of RPG, uh, uh, where it's like, no, just do all of it. Why the fuck not? Yeah. I already like, uh, snuck past the guard, uh, at, at the back of this alley, but there's also this other ladder over here. I'm like, why can't, can I jump to, can I reach that? Let's do a dice roll. Let's figure it out. Especially because then afterwards, the, this is one of the more important things is that when you, when you finish a dice roll, either, even if you if you um if you succeed or fail, you'll often have some carryover dice that follow you to the next roll. And some of them are obviously negative, but even the negative ones will have to have one one spa- one side one face that is something positive. And there's uh you always have like three um re rolls, and there's actually some dice faces that will let you get a couple more in there. So there's a really fun push and pull for just like. Uh, trying to interact with everything that's possibly interactable because the outcomes and everything is always kind of entertaining and interesting and surreal in a really fun way. Like, it's it's a very funny game. Um, and it's also very short. But there's also, like, supposedly 12 endings, which I don't understand how there's that many endings given... It's a very small game, Um you can probably finish a run in like, I think it was like two and a half hours if you were like really, really thorough. And I'm like, what could have I done differently to even get a different ending? Which is, you know, I think it speaks to yeah. like a lot of the games, you know, core thesis is 
pushing back against your like traditional quote unquote interactions in a video game. And so in some ways it seems like you have to play this game to understand its own anti-logic relative to your expectations. And so that, yes, the reason you can't even, it's like where where would the I other have endings done are different? Like right, 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 <laughs> right. Because you, your limited worldview, yeah, Kato, yeah, exactly. Prevents you from imagining. Open my third eye. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, super fun, super fun, very interesting, bizarre game. Uh my number six is Norco. <clears throat> higher, yeah, higher. Okay, yeah, I, I thought that was going to happen. <laughs> um, and I think we're gonna. This is going to be the moment. Where we take a break, people want to go get water, more coffee, go to the bathroom. More nog. We are going to take a, a break, uh, and we'll come back and do the second half of of the list, which I think is going to go a little faster because we've had a lot more hand-raising <laughs> happening as we've gotten towards uh, this part of the list. So we'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back to do the second half of our Game of the Year top 10 list. We are at number five, which, Rob, where are we going? Natalie Watson's Immortality. <laughs> I I had Immortality on my list for a... V- oh, wait, did you raise your hand, yeah. Kato? Yep. Oh, okay. Never mind. I will save that. <laughs> Come All right. Time. Passes uh, to Ren. Ren. To me, uh, Caves of Could. Uh, Caves of Kud is a roguelike that has been. I'm I'm counting it as this year because it's been early say, access is, for a really long time. It's been it's been an early access, but this is the year that I really played it. I think also that's, that, that's the, I don't you know even as someone who's a stickler for <laughs> d- like rules and distinct definite. I, I feel like if you played a game this year, it could be on your top ten list. Oh, oh, see here's the I didn't do that because I have two lists. I have Renata's list of game of the year and cool games Ren played in 2022, which are two radically different lists. <laughs> This is not uh, a hard and fast rule, but my general rule on this is like you want to like recognize the games that like I, like part of, I, part of the look, exercise is this year, but but games can bleed through. Like if you, it's like look, I just really like I have one. It kind of bugs I, me. I didn't have time to play Guardians of the Galaxy last year. It came uh-huh. out in October. It's a, definitely like a 2021 game. Yeah, but like the time didn't come until this year, right? And in terms of games I played this year, this is probably. Right around this point in my list. Okay. Wow. Well, we'll, do, we, we'll have a, we can do yeah. our shout outs to, to other yeah. games yeah. At, at the end. So um, sorry, I didn't mean to throw a, a wrench no, in there. Please it's continue totally with games okay. of good. Um, I just want to know. I have I have a plan for what my goatee, my written goatee list looks like. Yeah, and go that fucking is, wild. That do whatever you'd these. like on that list. Um, so Caves of Could uh, has been in early access for a really long time, but this is the year that I like got into it. And I think the game has hit a really cool point. Um I love a traditional roguelike. I I, I do love, or that's not true. 
I love, I have previously loved the idea of a traditional roguelike. This is the first one that has really gripped me. And like, I have gone deep on all of its systems and like procedural, like, um, you know, uh, emergent storytelling. This is the one that really got me. Uh, until this point, when I look at a game like Rogue, um, like, um, oh God, what is that game? Uh, un something. Unexplored? Unexplored, yes. Right? They are, yes, it is unexplored. <laughs> okay. uh, they are games that can really effectively generate immersion stories about characters, about places, about all of these things um, through these roguelike systems, right? Caves of Code is the one that did that for me this year because it has such a beautifully realized world. Um, Caves of Code, the setting of Code is incredible. It is extremely well realized. The fact that it combines generative history, the generative histories of something like Dwarf Fortress with the explicitly constructed and intentionally built social structures of uh, a more hand-designed game makes something really, really special. There will always be the six-day stilt and the sultans of Kud uh, and, and the histories of Kud, right? But those, but the nuances, the details, the actual progression of those histories will change every time. And so you get this handcrafted feeling of, okay, this is a culture and a group of people and characters who have clearly been built by a person to be engaging, but they are situated in a world that is constantly changing and constantly like you are always discovering new things about and putting together new aspects of its history with each playthrough. And you combine that really engaging world building with a tremendous roguelike. Um, my favorite characters I've played this year have been Caves of Kud characters. I could tell you all about their various builds and ideals and the way that they've approached the world. The weird psychic who exclusively uses temperature powers to melt rock walls and create bodies of magma that just, like, melt people uh, with her brain. The person who is unable to get mutations but has strapped a dozen handguns to her back and so walks around with four sheriffs uh, who she's recruited to be her best friends moving through this mega dungeon with just four handguns strapped to her back with which she obliterates everyone who comes within sight. All of these characters are engaging and also fun to play, right? It is just a good engaging tactics game at times where it's like, okay, how do I deploy these specific skills in this situation to take out this group of enemies? Because it is an extremely deadly world. And that deadliness means it, it, it goes both ways, right? If you can put someone in a bad situation, you can win a fight quickly. And it's just really fun. And it kind of unlocked the mechanical side of the true roguelike for me, where I am like so much more willing to engage with, uh, you know, the, the ASCII art of rogue or the, uh, you know, various top-down perspectives in a way that like, I know how to build a story from this now. And the thing that did that was Caves of Kud. Excellent. Uh, Kado, you're number five. Uh, number five, my number five, let me make sure I mark this, was, um, 
Signalis. You cannot speak. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I figured. <laughs> I figured. That's where we were going. <laughs> no, no more phonemes. <laughs> My uh, number five uh, is Iron Lung. Um, the uh, horror game uh, from earlier uh, this year about being trapped in a submarine on a fucked up planet. You're a prisoner. You're going to die. There are creatures or things you don't really know, man. They're just sounds. But it's bad out there. Uh, and you are attempting to navigate to different parts of this map using uh, a really interesting, uh, like using the submarine and taking snapshots along the way and getting a little uh, glimpses of the outside world. I think what the Iron Lung does so effectively is a sense of place, a sense of atmosphere, the... You know, I mean, like, its opening premise of what the story is is really funny, but sort of like the story doesn't matter. Like, really what is so impressive about Iron Lung is its sound design. It is fucking haunting. The, the you know, hour and change or whatever that I spent in that little submarine, I can still feel that hunk of metal getting pushed on. I can hear the sounds of whatever is outside. It is uh, exceptionally well done in terms of putting you in a place. Uh, and when I often when I think about games at the end of the year, especially games that I played earlier in the year, where it's, you're grasping on to trying to remember, like what was it about it that imprinted on me? And for a lot of games, it's mechanics that made me feel a sensation. And in Iron Lung, it was sounds that take me to a dark <laughs> place. Uh, but Ren, I also know that you were very into Iron Lung as well. I I really loved Iron Lung, and also I want to I want to push back on the notion that its story doesn't matter. I actually no, think I, that, to me to yes, me yes, 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 to of course, me of course, it didn't of course. matter. Yeah, and I want to say that like Iron Lung in about an hour manages to tell a really compelling story that it that it mixes with its mechanics in a way that I find just tremendous. Uh, Iron Lung. Uh, the opening is that the entire world, the entire universe, most people have disappeared without warning. Most resources have disappeared without warning. Entire planets are gone. But in spite of this, there is this one moon with an ocean full of blood. And you are sent to explore that blood ocean in a ship that is going to kill you. Uh, in, in a ship that is not built to actually be able to investigate this, that isn't built for this depth, isn't nah, built for this pressure. You're meant to die. You're yeah, fucked. you're built to, yeah, <laughs> you are meant to die. And like the incredible thing about Iron Lung to me is that it combines this sense of atmosphere and this sense of place with a really engaging set of premises that make the game feel like it is about the ways in which systems are inexplicably cruel, right? The fact that you are a convict who has been sent to do this for a crime that the game never tells you in a ship that is designed to kill you in a world that with no explanation every single most the vast majority of people have disappeared from it is about engaging with cruel systems that you cannot understand because they are so much bigger than you so impossibly bigger than you what the fuck are you supposed to do you are in a blood ocean and it is crushing your ship and like all of that combines to make a really compelling and short narrative about trying to continue living uh, underneath a system that does not want you to, that is opposed to your continued existence and that you will never understand. 
And I think that fucking rules. Yeah. And it calls to mind. Uh, I, I, every like October, whenever I see like a good horror short, you know, like one of those things is like five to 10 minutes long. They frequently like comes out, then gets turned into a feature film that undercuts all the things that were interesting about the short uh, to begin with. Um, like games, like I like when I can experience games at different time scales that understand mm-hmm. they're not small because that's all that they could do, right? It's like oh, we don't have this, we don't have the the amb- amb- we have the ambition, but we don't have the the budget or resources. Like, right. there's nothing about Iron Lung that is better with more money, mm-hmm. with more resources. It is what it is, and I love what I love about short form storytelling. Um, it often st- tend to like lean hard on aesthetics because it, it can be suggestive of what is beyond that they can't build or don't want to build. And um, that that's a that's a huge part of why I found Iron Lung to be so compelling because it came in, it came out, it hits you like a sledgehammer in that process. And if you got to the end and it was like, cool, go to the next part of the blood ocean. We've got some other scary things to find. I. I guess not a better experience. No, for that. it's worse. And it's, it's much worse. And that's like the often my tension that, that experience like exists within all horror video games is the expectation that they must be, uh, you know, six to 12 hours. And that's just runs counter to how horror like works because it is less interesting with repetition. And so just Iron Lung just really reinforced like what is possible when you play with the form in terms of how much time the player even spends in an environment. And you can spend more time or less. There are other things to find in this in this world uh, if you don't just sort of mainline what the game is kind of gesturing you towards. But uh, it is it is one of those stark reminders that, uh, lo- you know, long. It's not just that like shorter games, quote unquote, respect your time better, but that there are ways to tell stories in different ways they take advantage of shorter periods of time. And Iron Lung was a really, a really good example of that, I think. But if and someone did want to make a longer Iron Lung that includes a ship upgrade system <laughs> uh, as you explore other blood oceans, <laughs> I mean, I would hear them out. Yeah, I, mean, I would like trust this designer if they yeah. wanted to do so. I, you know, uh, I haven't tried their new one. They didn't, they just released some, some new thing as well. Some little goofy little, uh, I think um, so. I, I saw David tweeting about that. Um, but that's the thing is that, like they've said that they want to continue this world. Like this, this the thing about Iron Lung is that the the developer has said, "I do want to keep looking at what this place looks like. What is this world where suddenly everyone disappears and inexplicable things start happening?" Yeah, but that's different I, than like seven levels, seven right. sub levels. I'm, I'm 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 absolutely like it is a very suggestive world, and I have. Never quite forgotten the term that they use for it, the quiet rapture, which is haunting. That's just a very haunting term to apply to a, well, I would call it a mass casualty event, but that's also the fun of it is that you don't know where, you don't know where everyone went. Are they dead? (laughs) They might be somewhere much, much worse. And it's that sense of uncertainty and inexplicability that like leans into that, like transfers over into the act of playing the game itself. And the other thing I love is that, like, it's a small, it's a small thing that's really on the nose. But I love that the ship is called the Iron Lung. I love that the that the submarine is called the Iron Lung. It's a machine that keeps you alive until someone turns it off. And like that, that fucking rules. It's so simple and it's sick as hell. I love it. I agree. Rob, number four, Pentiment. So, uh, I 
like I was predisposed to like this game, but I was still surprised by how affecting I found it. I think that was probably the 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 big turn for me. So many of the trailers, it made it look like a breezy period mystery with a cute art style. And that's kind of what I was signing up for. And I was like, cannot wait. Uh, this is just going to be, you know, charming and fun as all get out. And it is, but also because it is a game that takes place in like three chapters across across like pretty like wide time jumps. It also becomes a game that is very much about like the passage of time and aging and how people who are central to an earlier part of your life are suddenly just absent uh, in in a later part of your life, but still present as like memories and people whose uh, advice you revisit or or people who sort of live on in the stories uh, that that a community still like sort of shares uh, about this. I, I think the the other the other thing that like is going on in Pentiment though is the community is redefined midway through that game. Like this is a game that opens mm -hmm. as a medieval town whose life is in many ways, maybe not entirely orbiting around the uh, like Benedictine monastery. That's at the sort of center of town, but the town's identity is inseparable from that monastery. And then, Later in the game, uh, you know, the monastery is sort of in decline, but later in the game, the monastery doesn't matter at all. It's it's sort of uh, part of it is shut down. Part of it has been taken over by a different holy order uh, that described to really different uh, like like values in terms of like how they how they perform their acts of worship. And the, it, it sort of gets this feeling of. You see how life has moved on, like. It's not like there's a, a void at the center of town life. People don't notice that there's a void there anymore because the center of their world is is on other stuff. It's just it's it's not centered around this 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 institution. But because in earlier chapters you saw like life centered on this place, you you kind of can't quite forget that like there's an entire part of the map that isn't really active anymore there's an entire set of characters who are just gone there's an entire relationship uh between the town and the monastery that's kind of disappeared and the the way it plays around those themes and the way it sort of makes them central to the story uh really made it a much more affecting and thoughtful game than i was expecting and the, the other thing i would have to like the other thing I would I would have to acknowledge just in terms of like why this sort of skyrocketed up my uh you know top 10 list is that this game is so good at like the devastating time jump where you realize like or not even that there's one moment where where like the time jump itself calls attention to the fact that a character sort of passed away of old age but it is, I think, it's most effective when you are coming back and, and sort of you're in a new chapter of the game. You're catching up with characters that you've known since they were fairly young people and people have just gotten sick and died. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, major characters, you know, someone someone died in childbirth uh, and they're they're just kind of gone. You know, how did how did their story end? That's how it ended. It didn't really like the things that were in play uh, for, for them, what they want to do with their life. That's 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 kind of over. Um, those things never came to a head because just the vagaries of, of, of life happened. And 
it doesn't overdo that. Like it's not a game that is consistently uh, just like unloading gut punch after gut punch, but the the way it looks mortality in the passage of time really squarely in the eye uh, was was really striking in this game and uh, consistently consistently landed for me. It never felt mawkish or exploitative or manipulative. Um, in some ways, it's kind of matter of fact about like death and, and death and tragedy. And that makes it maybe all the more affecting. Uh, just a just a tremendous game uh, and a delight to play. Yeah, I really enjoyed what I played of Peniment. I want to finish it uh, soon. And I also think that like as someone who played another one of Josh Sawyer's games this year uh, on my own time, uh, Pillars of Eternity, I think that's actually a, 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 a genuine strength of, of Sawyer's work broadly is is games that approach time and people's lives from a very nuanced and honest perspective. Um, there are moments in Pillars of Eternity where, you know, the traditional like NPC side quest or the, the companion quest in so many games is how do I solve this person's problem for them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are several central quests in Pillars of Eternity where someone just goes, oh, I never get to know. I just don't get to know. One of my favorite moments in that game is um, uh, one of the first, the first companion you meet is trying to learn why his brother uh, changed sides in a war they were fighting. Why did he, why did he convert to, why did he, you know, commit treason, right? And you never learn. You do the whole quest, you go to the burial site, you do all of these things, and at the end of it, he just asks you to stop. Or he's like, listen, I don't think I'm ever going to get this closure. And like, that is just as affecting as finding the answer and having it transform it because that moment is just as transformative. The failure and the, the way that life just happens to people is similarly transformative to someone in Pentiment who never finishes the project and you walk into their home um, with their children who are now grown up and you see the tools that their parent used to use or something like that where you're like, oh, this has fallen into memory, incomplete Right. This there is no final conclusion that makes this easy or, um, you know, acceptable. It is just life happened. And instead of being like life happens, nothing matters. It's like, no, life happens and it actually matters a lot. Uh, It matters deeply to the people who were exposed to that person and, you know, who, you know, continue to live on. Um, And I think that is really sick and like worthy of commending um, and why I really loved Pentiment. Kato. Four. Hit me. Wait. Wait, Ren. No. Oh, Ren. Oh, you just talking, so I just attribute it to you. Ren, hit me. Four. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, number four. Door Fortress. Door Fortress. Um, Talk about a game rocketing. Of, exactly. Yeah. Officially <laughs> came out on Steam, uh, what, seven days ago. Uh, and in that time, I put probably like 20 or 30 hours into it um i took a few days off last week to spend time with my girlfriend and that entire time was devoted to uh, spending time with her and also playing dwarf fortress uh, in the downtime of that and um i really love it um i love i've liked colony sims before i've talked about RimWorld on the podcast previously um there is a reason that dwarf fortress inspired an entire genre uh, and really helped uh, set the groundwork for the modern colony sim as an idea. Uh, and it does 
not only did it set that groundwork, it does it better and with more nuance and with more humanity than anything else. I think that um, where RimWorld um, has over time, because of its developers' weird politics uh, and because of the uh, systems that have been implemented, RimWorld encourages a kind of weird cruelty or like it seems to endorse, not endorse, but like mechanically gives you a lot of tools to be a weird fascist. You can genetically engineer people. You can do all of these things. And in doing so, it fo- ends up focusing more on the things that hurt people and, and making the worst world possible. Where I think that Dwarf Fortress, through its really complex way of modeling emotion and social systems and relationships, is a lot more even-handed about its approach to what does an interesting story about someone's life look like. Um, RimWorld is really interested in big swings and, you know, messy ends and all of this stuff. And I think that Dwarf Fortress is at its best for me when it's, like, kind of mundane, uh, you know. Dwarves being dwarves. Dwarves being dwarves! I love to check on a dwarf and be like, hey, dwarf, what's up? And the dwarf is like... I've been thinking. I really like hanging out with that guy. And I'm like, damn, I'm glad you, I'm glad you like hanging out with that guy. Or checking in on Dwarf and being like, noticing that they are having the current thought that they're having is, oh man, I remember that really good day I had at work. That was, that was really nice, actually. And that memory becomes important to them. And like watching these characters change over time and having these things like actually affect them. Um, and, and affect their belief systems. I think that's the difference between something like RimWorld, where you do things to characters and it hurts them, uh, and it changes their mood, uh, and that's about it. With Dwarf Fortress, when things happen to people, they change. Um, you know, if you experience a lot of trauma, you become more hardened to it, but on the other hand, when your friend dies, you may have a completely changed relationship to mortality. You may have a religious experience that leads to you worshiping a new god. There are all of these moments where these characters get to have lives. And I think that's really incredible um, and, like, commendable. And, yeah, I think Dwarf Rich rolls. Well, it seems like a game so interested in the mundane that also allows when the extraordinary happens that it hits harder. Yeah. Um, so when you have moments where, like, a a group of giraffes invades and <laughs> murders everybody, which is something I saw on, on Twitter recently. Uh, I mean, obviously yes, it's dwarves and like, there's already sort of a, a fantasy setting established, but I don't know. I think it's because the systems they're interested in. And by that, I mean, the designers are just drilling down deeper into sort of what's is seemingly mundane or irrelevant. All those end up adding up into something very relevant um, as a result. I know how to make soap. I know, I know the process by which you have to make soap, which is, you know, producing lye and then getting like pot ash and all of these different materials that you then combine together to make a bar of soap or the game's medical system uh, to actually have an effective hospital. You have to know how to build a traction bench, which involves like building chains and setting up a room properly and doing all of this work that is like not just complexity for the sake of complexity, uh, but or complexity for the sake of realism, but complexity for the sake of, like, finding mechanisms beautiful and finding, like, the things people, and in this case dwarves, make beautiful uh, and meaningful. And, like, 
that rules. I think that's that's sick as hell. And also like the game's directive of just make meaning in the world, make your own directives. I think that's like a, a pretty common thing with all of these games. But Dwarf Fortress takes it to another level where not only are you the player trying to make meaning through this fortress you're building, but your dwarves are trying to find and produce meaning in their lives. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes failing and then having to be like, well, I thought that this would be fulfilling for me and it wasn't. I have to find something else now and like changing professions. And I think that that rules. Um, yeah. Dwarf Fortress is cool. All right. Now, Kato, truly. Number, <laughs> number four. Um, my number four is Citizen Sleeper. No, it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it can still be his. The rules of the game don't. I mean, look, did I did I spend a little bit of time thinking, wouldn't it be funny if you could just like take someone's game off of their list? Like you get one card. It's like, sorry, that's not on your list anymore. (laughs) Uh, All right. Citizen Sleeper uh, holds. uh, And then we move to uh, Rob. No, you, you, Patrick. Patrick. I didn't write my. I wrote the list down, but I didn't write myself here. All right, now I have a full list. Um, uh, my number four is Elden Ring. No, it's not. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I figured that. Uh, all right, Rob, hit me. Warhammer 40k Demon Hunters is my number three. It's 40k. It's really good tactics. <laughs> it's got a great campaign structure. We played a bunch of it on stream. I played a bunch uh, off stream. It is incredibly cool and like solves the problem of how you make how you make like space Marines, particularly ones with like, you know, wild psychic powers and shit. Like, how do you create a game where they at once feel incredibly powerful and destructive. And also you've really got to be on point in sort of leading your, your squad through these levels. And, you know, they, they did that. They did that really well uh, here in this game. Got who acquired the studio uh, like not long ago. Um, Cause the, 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 the studio did get acquired uh, in, in the wake of this. Uh, huh. Oh, that's right. I think uh, maybe frontier just bought them out. Right. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it, so it, like if you're, if, if you're a Warhammer for K nerd, it's going to land really, re- really well on that level of just like making the absolute best use of that theme. But also it is probably like the best XCOM like game since XCOM, uh, certainly since XCOM two, but you know, if I were to choose between this and XCOM two, I'm probably playing this. Uh, like that's, that's how much I enjoy it. The, the thing that I really, uh, think was a kind of a brilliant idea is the timer they put the missions on. So some missions do have timers like an XCOM where it's like, you got to get the MacGuffin by such and such a turn and interact with it to, to win the mission. But then there's also the like warp surge meter that is filling up. And so in a lot of times in tactics games, you know, you end up with that, um, the XCOM, like the, the problem of Overwatch, right? Where like, you're kind of always better off pushing out very slowly and making sure that you are always like set up well for whenever you run into an enemy pod and a take combat the cheap begins. slow way and guarantee success as opposed to taking risk. Right. 
And and that will extend to the, the firefights themselves, right? Where you'll be sort of encouraged to, especially on the harder difficulty levels, the entire game is risk mitigation or risk elimination mm-hmm. uh, because it is so swinging and so punishing for taking risks that you are you are you are really now looking to make uh you know moves where there where there is kind of no vulnerability here because the longer you are deployed on a mission the warp surge meter will keep filling up and sometimes it provides like a temporary buff to the enemies but sometimes there's just like a global thing where where enemies mm-hmm. now will spawn in with 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 more points of armor that you're going to have to deal with or globally your knights just don't have as much willpower, i.e. mana, for this mission. And so if you are taking your time and, and really being deliberate about this, you can have that warp surge meter fire five, six, seven times before you're out of the mission. That's seven rolls of the dice where something bad can happen, which, by the way, for like, like reminds me a lot of the Warhammer RPG uh, in, in a lot of ways where like the entire mechanical system is about like making other shit happen uh, to complicate what you are trying to do. This game kind of gets at that where you just have the sense of like, we need to hoof it, not because the mission is necessarily on a timer. We have more time, time if we want to use it, but our position is just going to keep eroding the longer we are, we are deployed on this mission. So we, we better book it. And so then interacting with that warp surge meter kind of gives a ton of structure, both to your campaign because it fills faster on mission on planets where um you know effectively it's a pandemic board game style map where the higher the level of like chaos infection on a planet the faster the default warp surge meter fills so you might get a warp surge after just like two or three turns uh so it's it's happening very rapidly uh or it might be happening very slowly because the planet is not very very affected um and then of course your abilities will cause that meter to spike as well. This count this sounds so fucking stressful. <laughs> when this game it's came so out, fun. like my whole like thing was I love XCOM one and two. I like mostly play strategy games that are like spoked out of that, which is why I liked that. Oh, it was the game with the animals from a couple years back. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um Mutant New Zero. Yeah. Great game. Great, great game. Um and this one came out and you you were saying all the things, but then you like as you're describing all this stuff I get the attraction, but also I'm just like, oh, I think that might be, I think that's too much for me, which is why I installed it on my Steam Deck and just never hit play. Well, you shouldn't because uh, it maybe they changed it since then, but it was a warning popped up. They're like, this is not Steam Deck. Good. Friendly. Yeah. Please it's don't blame like, this. There's the verified, like shit. which is where they're like, it's good. And then there's games that are like super not like you probably shouldn't do this. <laughs> this is not this is not gonna be a good experience. And they were right. It was terrible. Uh, but but Patrick, I would I would agree. It is very stressful. The harder missions uh, do get like intensely stressful, but I wouldn't say more stressful than than a typical XCOM mission. And the thing that once you sort of understand like manipulating this meter and like charging through the levels part of the game, what ends up encourage what ends up encouraging is more um, to put it in football terms. Hit me. You got to go to the air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like just like to win this game you got to start running deep routes throwing deep balls you can't you can't be like uh you know we're just going to go for a four-yard gain again and again and again it's a little this. bit like when you know the, the thing that we always worry about is you've got a minute 30 on the clock and yes the bears are in the lead but on the other side you've given aaron Rodgers a minute 30 tom brady is also brought up in this like these 
surgical aggressive yeah. precision that it's not always a hail mary. You're not just always throwing like sixty yards down, but it is just aggression to put the opponent on their heels because they're not used to you moving this swiftly and this aggressively. And that is like just the nature of your characters. There are so many things that are baked into what your characters can do to allow you to get in their, their faces really, really quickly. And so you start being encouraged. You're given the tools and the incentive by the structure of the game to say, I need someone to charge in there. Like they've got to go in. They got to like go in deep. And we are going to be able to bail them out because of all these other powers that we're going to be able to hit with. And so you just start having these absolutely like carnage filled turns uh, as you as you play this right. And it is it is such a blast. Um, So like I yeah, I like can't rate it highly enough in terms of what a tactics delight uh, it was this year. What about our dear Inquisitor? She is very, very cute. (laughs) <laughs> and very, yes. very hardworking. Uh, yes. And I think more to the point, everyone looks good in this game. The The way this game looks like, not quite like miniatures come to life, but it does look like CG animation that is heavily inspired by like miniatures. Right. There's something about the actual animation, oh. like the frames of it. Like they're I just mouths. saw the Lego movie uh, the other yes. day. And like, 10 minutes in, MK turned to me and was like, is this stop motion? And I was like, no, but it looks like it might be. There's this little bit of you that's like, this kind of looks like they stop motion animated a Lego place. Have you seen the Batman one, Rob? Not yet, no. Oh, my God. That (laughs) that movie, the Lego movie's good, but like the Batman movie's awesome. (laughs) But yeah, to to that point, Ren, I think it's doing some of that where, where it just like, yeah, the the animation, the sense of scale, the movement, it all feels mm-hmm. a bit like, uh, you know, if you imagine miniatures coming to life when you weren't looking at them, it would look a little bit like this. Their jaws are hinged just just stiff enough where mm-hmm. it's like, that's not how a person's mouth moves when they talk, but that is how someone would animate a toy's mouth moving. Um, if it, it, it's It's really well done. And also just like, the vibes are so rancid aboard that ship. It is a game with a real <laughs> mastery of creating characters with the worst possible vibes and then making them talk to each other a lot. Yeah, the, God, that's the funny, the funny, the funny meta layer of that is uh, so it's is doing the XCOM thing of, uh, you know, Valen is going to be talking or Tygen. Like there's the scientists. It's all the same stock characters. But the difference here is XCOM is all very much like we're a team and we're, we work together. This is very much like we are all representatives of completely different bureaucratic silos that exist in this huge empire. And the silos do not talk to each other, but we have to talk to each other. (laughs) And so there is this consistent like. For instance, uh, Lunette, the uh, cyborg, the beloved tech priest, one of the like oldest characters like this is this is a character that effectively in 40K terms, like has a memory that goes back to biblical times. Like. Their entire interaction with you is basically like you command the ship, but you're leasing the ship. This is my ship and you just rent it. And at a certain point, like I'm just going to make some decisions about how we do this because you are frankly not qualified to do so. And I have to think about like the good of the ship. Rob, did you see that in the DLC? 
Lunette's playable for a mission. Oh hell yes, Rob! We have to go back. <laughs> we do, Rob. We, we have do. to go. We have to go back. I gotta. I gotta see them in the field. Because uh, so such a funny, goofy character. It's like if they go to the field. It's like it's like if you deployed Wally to saving mm-hmm. Private Ryan. I think <laughs> is, is how I imagine Lunette uh, going mm-hmm. into combat would be. Except like then Wally kills like the entire Third Reich. Yeah. yeah 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 what if what if wally also like ordered people to be made into meat computers like yeah. relatively frequently <sighs> anyway that's, that's tremendous demon hunters play it demon hunters ren take us away so i've been looking at my list and i've been debating between the position of two different mm-hmm. games mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i think that i will i will i've, I've made a decision Norco is number three. Norco no. is number three. No, it's not. Okay, perfect. No. Kato. Okay. okay. On to you. Okay. <laughs> Let's go, Kato. Um, hold on. That was Ren's number three. Making <laughs> sure I got my things. All right. Um, my number three is one. Natalie Watson's immortality. <laughs> I like the new name. I, yeah. I petitioned that. Uh, was one of us willing to sacrifice getting banned on Wikipedia <laughs> to have it have it changed? Immortality, uh, the game from Half Mermaid, uh, the dump you into a uh, an archive, a mysterious archive that has been digitized and put into this very f- interesting way of uh, scrolling through an archive, which is by match match cutting between different. Uh, different scenes of three different films um, and looking through, I think at this point we haven't really delved into too many spoilers, but I feel like the one thing that we haven't done on any of the times we've mentioned immortality is actually talk about the spoilers in this game. Do we want to do that for this one? I can't think of another spot for it. Right. Um, um so, because uh, sure and, let's and, clearly mark you yeah, know yeah uh, we'll, for we'll, people i think we should say maybe we add a little thing up front like hey there might be spoilers going through so if well, you, you want to talk game, about like very end of end of game spoilers so you want to talk about, about the, the general even, haunting even just because we the, didn't the talk haunting. about the general haunting we didn't we never we never got there even when we mentioned it originally we definitely just talked we about, talked around that because that's the first big discovery you have yes exactly and i think all i said when i brought it up a week or two ago was uh, it's a game in which you observe you observe people, and then I felt myself observed. That was the way I <laughs> I, I, I described it. Um, I I I I'm I'm interested in talking about this part of the game also because I've I think I hit it a lot earlier than Patrick hit it, and I'm curious. I uh, too. Rob, when you hit it, and how I wasn't sure. So I have suspected. I'm curious how early this clip. Because I played through it a couple times. Yeah. Um, and in both times, it surfaced a clip for me very early, which was there a discussion with the in-game universe equivalent of Johnny Carson. Yes. And yep. it is the director dude talking I got those, to Johnny Carson. I got Carson. those so late. That's wild like, because it, it put them like it was like the second or third clip I got. And so it is them talking about like. Um, here's this movie that's coming up. No, it was actually, it was after, it was in the wake of uh, whatever happens with the second movie, Minsky. Yeah. And so the director sort of talks about like, 
the onset thing that happened, you know, tragically an actor lost his life. Uh, and so that was really interesting, but I remember I rewound that scene. Cause I was like, ah, oh, that was, that was weird. I gotta, I gotta run that back. Cause like what all happened here, I'm gonna take some notes. And then that's when I hit rewind. And then the scene plays out, but this was so early. I had no idea what was going on in the game. And the interview segment repeats. And there's a completely different character sitting there yep. in the chair. <laughs> and it was so, I was like, it was so early in the game. I didn't know any of the characters real well. I was like, it was like one of those things where I was like, uh-huh. did I just, did I just think there was a completely different dude doing this? Like, what the fuck is this? And that's like, that was the first inkling of there being something profoundly weird. Is that uh, the one that strings? Game. That's where I start playing around with rewinding. Is that the one that strings into two two other with the same people, or is that one a later one? I think that might be a later one. Might be a later one. So I think the first one I got one was still that same. Um, it was like that talk show, but instead of being with the director, it was with um, the main character who's in. I keep seeing Manon all over, everywhere because we're talking about her and like her acting. I don't actually remember what the name. Manon is. Gage's uh, Marissa, Marissa, Marissa Marcel. Marissa right? Um, yeah. Marissa Marcel on the talk show, and that one leads into a, a string where then you see three or four back to back conversations with the other entities. I'll call them for now uh, that get progressively and progressively more deteriorated like the vhs tapes are just getting worse and worse to where at the end they look like grays like aliens like their eyes are huge and bold just because of the distortion on the vhs and like that was the first time one of these appeared to me and i was like it was like 1 a.m and i was like uh, this is I'm 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 done for tonight. Even though I want to know what's happening, I feel like if I go any further, I'm gonna have literal nightmares. Um, but it was uh definitely an accident as well. I feel like further on they become a little more touchy. Like at a certain point after, there's some that are very like yeah, it like wants you to rewind to at a certain. Like, and that's yeah. and that's what happened to me. Yeah. I didn't get any of these talk show things till much later in my playthrough. I spent a long time to the point where I was like, "What am I doing? What am I doing? Like, how many of these clips am I going to?" Which go one was through? your first one that you hit? I think I got one of the subtle ones, which yeah. is where like the controller vibrates, and yeah, yeah. Eventually, I I like rewound, but I didn't get you know the like the character looking at me or. Um, a dialogue with the two entities. It was like one of those ones where you just saw like an overlap, you know, like a kind of a transparent, like you were seeing. This is what I mean. The layer. There is another, that's a, that's a clip. If you we have to rewind it at the right speed to actually see the clip, it gets okay. weird. Yeah. Yeah. But that, if you go find that clip, if you remember which one that is, there is mm-hmm. actually a clip there that you can watch. You just have okay. to start the rewind at the right place. If it, it can't be too early and it has to be rewound at the right speed. See, I don't think I, I don't think I quite picked up on even that it's as a mechanic. Diff- yeah, um, it's it's it was bizarre when there, I figured there are it ones out. the game want like really the ones that trigger the ending are a little like they're hard, like they're hard to you can't really screw them up. But I I don't actually think I'm sure I got a couple of those. Yeah, but I never got the sense of when I saw that like kind of transparent oh, really? layer 
that was a guarantee there was a hidden clip. Yeah. Because I would go back and forth and I would see it and I'm like, okay, like I guess I'm just supposed to see a face here and then I would move on. So in some ways that's kind of retroactively a little disappointing <laughs> that you had to be that specific. And this is why I I don't know and I don't know how this plays out on keyboard and mouse or not, but this is why I like I preferred, even though I'm playing on PC, I preferred using the analog sticks because it felt I had like a little more control over like the forward and backwards scrubbing because you're using this the stick to kind of go forward, fa- forward and backwards faster or slower. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm and did anyone else play on on keyboard or is everyone did everyone use how? I pl- yeah, I played on my Steam Deck. How so does that was, work out? Like, do you have that speed control still where you can kind of slowly go backwards? Yeah, it's been or? a minute. I feel like you are. I feel like you make a spin gesture that that speeds up yeah. uh the the rate. Okay. Yeah. Did you find did you find you had any issues getting some of those to work cuz there were a couple that were tricky and I eventually got but I I think I I think not. the thing that I missed was um you know there's going to be no controller vibration. Right. But there's enough Eventually, I realized that there were often auditory cues yeah, as well. That too, yes. And yes. so I started trusting that, like, okay, that wasn't like just the score that's playing in the background of of the game. That's like that was there's something at this at this moment I need to cut in on. Well, and and so like you know this is, I think this is what makes it such an interesting game as well. You know. Previous Sam Barlow games unfold according to the logic of like a procedural mystery, right? And sort mm-hmm. of the reveals are okay. This is what this is what's going on. Immortality is like three of those games sort of stacked on top of one another. You know what I mean? Like what what happened with any of these pictures is a typical Sam Barlow game in right. in a lot of ways, right? Um, but what becomes really interesting in Natalie Watson's immortality is that the whole, the whole wrapper on the game turns into this. There's the mystery. There's the individual mysteries of what happened with each film. Was this person shot on set or is, is this a goof that I don't fully comprehend? (laughs) Yeah. But, and then there's that bigger question of like, who is this? Let's call them like the third character because so much of the center is on Marissa and the director whose name I don't remember. But then there's this like third character or spirit who haunts the films and appears to be their pivotal moments uh, in these as these three film productions unravel. Uh, And. Where they they are situated in the story in relation to Marissa, in relation to the whole conceit of how you're navigating this game and where you are yeah, uh, makes this such a interesting and unsettling experience uh, and, and very different from uh, previous like Barlow works. I definitely didn't expect it to be legitimately scared by that game at all. <laughs> and it, it might makes have been me wonder, in- it makes me wonder if that was present from the start and because it's very easy to imagine if you stripped away that layer, how you would craft you know, a, a mystery out of what, you know, what's happened to this actress, you know, what happened on set, you know, right. it's, it's, it's really easy to, to see how you could have put together something that was a little more traditional to what Barlow has done in the past, uh, as Rob pointed out. Um, but that extra layer here is really transformative to what, I mean, it's really elevates it to other than just to being like three, like well shot period 
uh, like dramas which, or exploitation films well, with a really cool UI, which yeah. itself would be interesting, and then really takes it to another place where it is like the storytelling itself is like fundamentally interesting yeah. in a way that I did not expect uh, at all. I have to finish it. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, please go finish it. It's good. I don't think I don't. Here's what's funny is. Well, let me ask you, Patrick. You finished it, right? Yeah, there's a credit sequence. There's a credit sequence. It'll show you credits? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then I haven't yes. finished it. I thought yeah, I might have finished it, though. Is a you, thing. <laughs> I mean, look, like, when it ends, or when the game declares it over, mm-hmm. it's not as though it is with, like, supreme resolution. Right. Uh, you yeah, know, sure. you, you can you can have a takeaway of, like, what, what is implied by the, the final sequence, but it is also a game that if you do not find like the triggers that then lead up to, to what I consider sort of the ending, like it's like, if you don't finish it, I don't think you've really missed very much is what I'm saying. Like it is, it is not as though there's a final puzzle piece. There is a, a fourth entity that like, you know, ah, now it all makes sense. Like that's, that's not the way the narrative ends up. And, and I think the game is okay with you. So in yours, Marissa doesn't show up and say, and say, I'll see you again in 20 years. Uh, I had it on, it is in my, um, my honorable mentions only because it was in my top 10 for a long time. And then I just couldn't figure out the last couple of games to take off. So I just invented an ethical dilemma and said, well, can't put it on there because I know Natalie, which is just not true. It's bullshit, but I just needed an excuse to take a game off. So, uh, apologies to, to immortality for, for dropping off as a result. Um, my number three Metal Hellsinger, uh, the first person music rhythm, a metal game came out back in the fall. I was really high on it when it came out. And then I just didn't get around to finishing the rest. And it was part of like a several game sprint that included immortality a couple of weeks back in which games like, gosh, I don't want to leave this one on the table. I want to spend more time with it and, and it really confirm my feelings and, all all it did was just confirm them over and over. You know, it's a first person rhythm game where you are, you know, tapping to the beat. Uh, the beats change based on the guns that you are using. So like a shotgun is more of kind of almost like a drum. Um, you have pistols that are like work at a faster pace. You have a sword. You have all sorts of different items or weapons that you have that uh, operate at different rhythms. Um, uh, and then you're also like going to the, you know, the, the work in rhythm uh, with the music itself and you know, I, I've said many a time how much I appreciate games that allow me to uh, get closer to music in a way that uh, I don't really, uh, you know, with my lack of own musicality or being able to like play any instruments. I always appreciate games that get me closer to a mode of music. And like, I don't want to listen to this style of music at, at home or it'd be like, like if someone dragged me to a concert, be like, fuck, yeah. This is a great time. I'll go. I'll go see this band, but I'm not going to listen to it in my spare time. And so, having being able to appreciate a genre that otherwise you'd have very little to do with be, uh, through the medium of games is, I think, super fucking cool. Yeah. Um, and it's just really well designed, top to bottom. Uh, very much one of those games that it, I'd come out of sequences and like get up and like punch the the sky because it felt so good to pull off a certain sequence or survive a particularly harrowing. Uh, section of enemies uh, and uh, just just really really well done so that is Metal Hellsinger which now we move on 
to number two. We're getting real here. I don't know what Rob is doing. No No idea. idea. I got to go look at my PS5. Don't worry about it. Oh, so I'm up. Yeah, you're up. Yeah. Number two. So. This is where I have Elden Ring. Okay. Is that as high as Elden Ring goes? I think so. Mine was also two. Seek the Elden Ring, you tarnished. Okay. So two, two. But wait, you you have Elden Ring too? Wait, wait, sorry. So everyone's got it at two? That's that's what I have it at four, but I was just confirming that you yeah. Yeah. So you have it at four, Kato has it at two, Rob has it at two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not even on mine. Wow. Well, Well, Wow. Melania just beat it out of my friend's top (laughs) ten list. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, so like, as the case with all these games, I haven't come close to finishing this fucker. I watched, <laughs> uh, MK play the shit out of it. How far did she get? Um, I think she got to like, last you talked about it. She was in the winter parts, which is getting she, towards She's the, at like final, like two bosses. Okay. And that's where I'm at. Hit a point was like, I do not need to do this anymore. Like had seen videos and like, here's how, like, no. No, just done. <laughs> Understand the principle, not playing these battles. Uh, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. and and I, I will say, like, it does seem like toward the end there, it becomes such a gauntlet of like huge boss battles that like yep. it loses a lot of what makes the makes the game so arresting to begin with uh, and becomes a bit of a like supercut of like really difficult uh pattern recognition boss battles. Uh it gets it gets much more a traditional souls uh game in that respect and yeah. there are far fewer things to distract yourself with well and the scale gets so colossal too that yeah. like a lot of the interesting like nuances of the combat system kind of feel like they drop away a little bit and it, it turns into more of a you're, you're you're finding a huge like almost shmup arena mm-hmm. in a lot of these uh big battles but you know that's pretty late in an otherwise huge game and i think one of the things that I can't name many games that do such a good job of giving you this feeling of like exploring new spaces, but like they're consistently dangerous and uh, not necessarily oppressive spaces, but just like eerie or wondrous or, or, or menacing. Like so much of this game is, Oh, I didn't, I'm here now I'm in like, when I first breached Raya Lucaria and for a long time that it's been like, I can't get in there. <laughs> and then it's like, I'm in it. And I have no idea what that means. What does it mean to be in this place and start like creeping around and sussing out what's going on there or like going into the, the, the underground, uh, Seal for but, river. Yes. Yeah. So like even the discovery that that exists yes. in the game God. is, is probably Talk one of my favorite off. moments in a <laughs> video game. Period is just are are you are you oh the whole time on the map screen there was a button that would have revealed that there is another layer but you have no reason to press that button until you go to the underground and then discover oh no it's, there's another game under here you go down and like that is the moment that I wrote about in my review that like completely sold me on Elden Ring I was like in a weird place with a game until you go down that fucking elevator and you look up and you see the stars and like that moment is 
for me, unmatched. Like the seal for River Valley is the best part of Elden Ring for me. It's the best part of it mechanically. It's the best part of it aesthetically. It is the be- probably my favorite boss fight in the entire game because I think the ancestral spirit is just so beyond gorgeous um, and so engaging that like it's 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 incredible. Um, that that spirit of exp- exploration that you're talking about, Rob, is like so fucking good, as you were saying. No, but I think there's so much of the game that has moments like that where uh, you are where you're like, I didn't realize this here. And now, holy shit, I can explore all of this. Uh, you know, I like who uh, who's the name of little fucker that you fight on the bridge outside Stormvale. First boss of the game, really. Margaret. Um, Margaret. Margaret. I wanted to say I was like, Marva's not it. Uh, but but Margaret. So <laughs> yeah. that was that was a tough fight initially. And it was, it was like annoying as hell and so for a long time i just like fuck this i can't i cannot handle i had one of the spirit breaking battles where you're like you've got them down to a pixel of health mm-hmm. and <laughs> then you just like dodge into the abyss oh you didn't even no. need to you just panicked you just like you could have just sidestepped and just like done literally anything else but instead you died and so just fucked off and explored a ton of the world, had a had a great time. And and that was really key to enjoying the game as well, is like the sense of Okay, I'm encountering too much friction, too much resistance in this one direction. I am just going to drift along in a different direction to see what else is out there. But when I finally did get past Margaret and I I get into the castle, once again, immediately it's the similar feeling of this place is huge. And again, like Different sorts of enemies here, different sort of spaces we are having battles uh, in. Suddenly, you know, there's a lot more fighting up and down staircases and narrow corridors and that kind of that kind of stuff uh, was probably like my favorite experience of the year. This this constant sense of like. I didn't know this was here. And it kind of feels like anything is possible in here. Like, mm-hmm. I just I like I just don't know. And there's so there's so much of it. Like, you know, the initial forays through Stormvale was almost like this tense room by room exploration that I'm that I'm carrying out. Which is so fundamental. It's like, it, it, you know, the easy read on Elden Ring leading up to its release was, well, what is from software going to do with an open world? And I think that was the wrong question to ask, because what was so interesting about Elden Ring was what can they do with space like more broadly? And I think you're speaking to it there, Rob, which is that you have this freeing exploratory nature out in the like broader world, but then they're also going to put you in a vice grip and put you into this castle and all the tactics you relied on previously to give yourself breathing room. They don't exist anymore. You're not even aware of how much you've gotten used to like, I just get on my horse and ride away. You aren't even just aware of how Hit reflexive that has become. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the, the, like the fact that the geometry restricts and changes your approach to the game and how they understood that and like let you flow between those states and also make it optional. Right. Like, I mean, hell, you can skip that castle. Like you just go around on the yeah. right and like just skip it. And like that that's what is so interesting about so one of the many interesting things about that game is the control that it gives you over the experience you want to have at any given time. I think there's way less of that as the game goes forward, which is I think it explains part of MK's experience and explains much of my 
experience in like the back third of the game. But like that first, basically up to the castle and even the area beyond it, but definitely like castle, the area to the south, that opening area, that like 30 hours, like that would be my number one. Mm-hmm. And then the game kind of dropped at a little bit um, relative to other experiences over this totality. But that opening area was was absolutely tremendous. I will hold some of these or most of these thoughts for the spoiler cast we're doing. Yes. Um, but the very short version of my and like final thoughts on Elden Ring is that like I think that Elden Ring provides the best narrative engine that the series has developed to this point. Uh, I think that it is the game that is best at like creating emergent narratives for for player characters. Uh, I think this is the that is the 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 peak of the series. Where I think that you know we had a piece published earlier this week about Demon Souls and how uh, Elden Ring loses the religious horror of Demon Souls, and I I uh, to some degree agree. Um, but I think that what it gains in place of that uh, real focus is an opportunity for emergent character narratives to really come to the fore and to like give players the opportunity to express themselves both mechanically and narratively uh, more than any other game in the series. Okay. Run. My number two is Citizen Sleeper. Perfect. Um, Citizen Sleeper was, uh, is a game where you play as a sleeper, a Android type, uh, basically an Android, uh, within a human consciousness uploaded to it, uh, aboard the space station called the eye. Uh, the game follows you as you work, uh, your Sigma grind set way through, uh, <laughs> being able to earn enough medicine to keep your body running. Um, and throughout that game, you are trying to find alternatives to this Sigma grind set capitalist system, which you have found yourself, um, in the midst of. Because one of the notes is that the station you're living on is one in the wake of a revolution. Uh, A revolution happened, the corporate overlords were kicked off of the station years ago, and now you are arriving in the wake of that revolution, where there are still active revolutionary cells and different factions trying to vie for power, and, you know, the station feels alien and magical and deeply human. Uh, as you meet characters throughout the station who you help uh, and who help you all while trying to balance uh, your own characters like needs and health through um, the uh, resource out al- the dice allocation system that the game has. Uh, it is I love it. Um, it is, I think, a really beautiful game that does a great job of showing how communities, respond to things and how individuals in communities can like work together to to do things and create meaning in the world and there is a reason that with every one of the game's endings where it says do you want to leave the eye do you want to turn into something else on the eye do you want to do x y and z and the answer i chose was always no i chose the place and the relationships that i built there over anything else and i feel like that is the strength of this game. It gives the cool hangout sesh and then also the really beautiful story about making a life somewhere. And I really love it. Yeah, yeah. I I it's it it only didn't make my top ten because I came up with an arbitrary reason to remove it, which was just 
I had games, you know, like Norco on there and I just was trying to make room for others. And it was just like, I don't make, the, I don't mean, mean to make this between Citizen Sleeper or Norco, but if that's just the way the, that's just the way the, way the cookie crumbled. And so I just picked one over the other, but I, you know, I also adored Citizen Sleeper and the, the fact that it, the dice stuff was such an interesting way to approach narrative choice, giving narrative chance, which is not usually <laughs> how that stuff works. And the, the idea that the player could decide what they want to do, but failure is a distinct possibility because that's just sometimes what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now and it's not a game that really lock like hard locks you out of, of things, especially as you start to can kind of like tilt the economy. But that first half of the game where it feels like there's real risk that things could end at any moment where, uh, you know, it's why I ended up asking the uh, the game's designer, like, hey, when you have that bounty hunter after you, boy, it sure seems feels like you're introducing a mechanic where the game could just end. Um, and that's terrifying. And so I ended up spending so many resources to prevent that end that locked me out of other things, at least early on. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, like, there's no actual hard end to the game but it is full of suggestions that there are and those tensions play against your your natural instincts as someone who plays video games which is there's a failure state you better avoid it because then you're going to have to a play this game again and there's the repetition aspect of that and also you don't want this to be the end of your player and the story you're telling and Mm. i think citizen sleeper can be perfectly enjoyed if you don't have a concept of video games as a medium but is enhanced by the game understanding what you think of how these systems are supposed to work mm-hmm. uh, and then how that creates stress and anxiety for the player, uh, even if the consequences are not nearly as dire as you're assuming. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's an RPG that kind of tricks gamers into role playing more in a bit, in a way, yeah. right? Like I think that's I think that's true. You You believe the stakes of the character are real, even if like there is no like video game game over screen that would that would have happened if things went wrong right it's a different kind of what consequences are are different are shifted different than the way gamers uh uh generally uh expect them to be right and i'm that i'm that person right like i like role-playing character identity like building up a character's narrative like ren talking about elden ring being a great narrative engine no, it ain't. <laughs> Not for me. Uh, and I, I don't have the imagination for that. And Citizen Sleeper splits the difference in introducing tension and role playing by like forcing those on the player. Yeah. Like still Elden Ring, the responsibility is for the player to invent the story for that character. Um, and the, what is their journey? Like there's an authorship to Citizen Sleeper with a huge variety of role playing in between. Mm-hmm. And then consequences both perceived and not that create so much variation in there that you end up in a place where like when we did our spoiler cast and, you know, and I talked about how my ending was and how you, both of you told me, well, you can go back and see the other endings. I was like, I don't need to. That is my ending. Mm-hmm. I consider it canonical. I don't want to see the other endings because that's not where my player ended up. And I think that's like a really powerful way for yeah. a game like that to work. Because like you said, Kato, it's it's pushing against those things of how story driven choice driven games normally work. And that's more role playing than I've done in a game than games full of choices. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I I think also we haven't exactly pointed, pointed to this. Uh, We kind of 
half mentioned it, but like I do think it's not only just like the dice system is an interesting way to make uh, choices matter, but also the dice deg- the degradation system as being yeah. one of the most mm-hmm. narratively interesting and also like mechanically integrated methods of describing your character's like day to day situation, right? Yeah. Making it really feel day to day um and making it you know like every there's been uh, we've mentioned before and lots of other people have written about the like parallels to living with disability living with other yep. forms of uh you know uh n- things that you have to maintain I- in a body and just like a really strong on like all of these different narrative angles mm-hmm. i think that like this is one of the spectacular games standout games of this year of yeah. this year I mean, like, of narrative bangers. <laughs> the year of narrative, exactly. They're also like, for me, like, that was the thing that really got me is that like, as someone who has spent a lot of this year struggling with disability and struggling with the intersections of work and disability, it, it hits really hard. I mean, like, man, the fact that the game is just like, there are some days where you roll the two and you have to put that two somewhere. And it's like, ah, fuck me. I sure do have to put that to somewhere. And that's a hard choice. But like you put the two somewhere and you watch the other things kind of fall apart and hope that you can get them put back together eventually. And then you do a little bit and then you have a day where you roll all twos and then suddenly it's like, ah, fuck, I can't actually devote that time there. Uh, And it's hard, but also the game is fundamentally hopeful in that it believes that connections between people and in community can offset all of this, Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't matter if you roll a two, if you help your friend set up a bar or set up a restaurant. And then suddenly they're like, if you're like, ah, shit, I don't have enough cash for like lunch today. Your friend is just like, just come here. It doesn't matter if you like, it doesn't matter if you roll a two. If you if you put in a two effort today, I will give you lunch. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And like seeing those connections and that sense of community start to fill in the gaps of the bad days, which never stop, is really exceptional. Yeah. All right, Citizen Sleeper. Kato. We, or Elden Ring was your number two. Yes. So we did your number yeah, two? Yeah, we did my number two. So we did Kato's number two. <clears throat> Patrick's my number two. Number two uh, is Minecraft. Um, haven't really talked about this <laughs> what? on the podcast. Is, is uh, yes, one of those games I've never really played before. Um, but it's a game my oldest kid got really, really into. And I've talked before about how... And I just talked about it here momentarily, like given a blank canvas paint, Patrick, I I will ask paint what, because (laughs) that's just not how my brain operates. I can, I can do the thing if you tell me what to do, um, but just have fun, like whatever you want. Uh, My brain just sort of like stops there. And my oldest got into Minecraft, which then forced me to figure out how does Minecraft run? All this other stuff. I, I admire the game for it being completely obtuse and like you still having to do things like go into a command line to give admin privileges <laughs> to like players coming into your server. Like that's fucking wild. That that's great that you have yeah. to jump through hoops. Well, I jumped through the hoops, but you know, like it still requires players to do this level of 
access into a game that uh, you just don't really see. But as your kids get older, my oldest is only six and uh, well, not quite six and a half, but let's say six. It's as they get older, like it's it's hard to come down to their level because kids get agency preferences. And when they're really young, they're always dragging you down to their level. It's like, play with me, like do this, do that. Um, cause they don't know anything else other than to ask you to do things with them. And so with Minecraft, it was like an interest my daughter had and I didn't. And then when I play it with, so she plays on her iPad with like kind of touch controls and I kept an old Xbox one that basically barely boots up, but I can run Minecraft and I play it on the TV. And when I go there, it's like, we're equals, Right. If anything, she the power dynamic shifts in her direction because she understands how to play. She knows how to navigate this space. And she's telling me what to do. I'm supporting her. Like she's like, we're building this house over here. I was like, okay. And she's like, and there's purple fucking windows. And I'm like, okay, I'll go find how to build these purple <laughs> windows. And it's just really interesting as a parent, like to find spaces where you can be on that level with your kids as they age into even six is where they're not leaving you behind, but their findings, they don't, they don't need you in those spaces anymore uh, or many spaces anymore. And there are very few spaces where you're equals. And I just found it such a profound and moving experience to have found that in Minecraft of all places, a game that I essentially wrote off as like a really revolutionary and, and, and incredible piece of game design but one that had no space in my life and yet my kid gets into it. And now m- most weekends we spend hours in it and we definitely don't count that as screen time because I'm playing with her. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no mom, that does not count <laughs> as screen time. Screen We're playing time. Minecraft together. That is different. Um, this is bonding time, just, not screen time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's just been a really cool uh, bonding experience where then we'll jump in and then she'll show me, you know, this is the stuff that I was working on. Like they have multiple servers going with like her friends and like, we'll jump between those. And, uh, you know, I thought when, you know, I've never rushed my kids to be interested in video games. I spend so much time thinking about video games already. Uh, I want a, I wanted my kids to have their own interests. Like just because video games are such a huge part of my identity, it should not be yours. That should be something you figure out on your own. And also, selfishly, I just want to fucking break from video games. Um, but this experience has, I thought it would be something like, well, we're, you know, I don't know. This is not the game that I expected to be the thing that my uh, kid and I bonded over. And I, it's I actually sort of calling it a video game is is certainly reductive. Um, uh, but Minecraft was definitely the one of the best experiences I, I had this year, even if it was uh, something that goes against all the things that usually make me happy in a video game, which is goals, accomplishing things, there, ticking off stuff. There's um, goals in that you, game. We don't. Well, we play in creative mode. We don't. We don't do survival. So when um, so waypoints, uh, survival mode. Uh, <laughs> when uh, when <laughs> we'll are we? When are, when are the four of us going when into we the fucking real game mode? Yeah. When are we going in, <laughs> making a house, forging some weapons, and killing a dragon? Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe I get, like, you know, a video card. You know what? Uh, well, I hear that. Wait, you know the RTX? RTX turned on. It does look pretty good. Yeah, it does wait, look I mean, good. I'll give you that. Waypoint Minecraft permadeath server. Yes. Sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, look, I mean, 
eventually she'll catch up to that. And part of what I need to do is stay ahead of her so that I can help explain things uh, to her <laughs> as she gets into it. So at some point that will, that she'll learn that swords are cool uh, in the game. Yeah. And uh, that'll be, that'll be something we have to get into. So that is my number two, which brings us to our number ones, Rob, number one video game of the year. What Gotta is it? give it up to uh, the king in this year of motorsport, Gran yeah. Turismo Seven. You uh, <laughs> absolute time sink. Played this more than anything else. There's probably a good three, four months where I was playing that for at least like you know thirty, forty minutes a day. Uh, getting my daily races, you know, saving up for cars. But I also need everyone uh, to check out the incredible. Uh, payoff for the end of the campaign. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize what was happening. Oh, until this was kind is of what you were doing in it. And so I really wish I had a video file like showing how this all unfolds. But it's, it's oh comprehensible as a slideshow. Okay. Uh, so it starts out, you win the final tournament of the campaign and you get a cool trophy and they tell you and just check out that trophy. Designed what? by Italian futurist what? Umberto Baccioni. <laughs> congrats, congrats from Chile. We both and then did Luca well out there. Tells you all your Gran Turismo friends are waiting for you, Flitcraft, at the Gran Turismo Cafe. This is the end of the campaign. Oh my god! Ron, so you die at the end of this game. Is this some sort of congratulations car heaven? Dude, it feels it, it feels like a living wake. It feels like they're saying goodbye to you. It's a uh, shame they don't have a piano in this cafe. I'd love to play you a celebratory song, says Lopez. And these and some of these are characters oh that you've met a hundred times. Like uh, there, there's a dude. Hey there, Flipcraft. This is Coque Lopez. Congratulations. Yeah, dude, like you've introduced yourself five times over the course of this race. That motherfucker is like, you know, if you ever visit France, be sure to have lots of baguettes. It's <laughs> amazing. Like the like they're fully like leaning into these are your little Grand Trigma friends. These are wow. the characters you've met along Shout this along this campaign. In Ostroza. We both did well out there. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, we fucking didn't. I kicked your fucking ass. Uh, that's why, that's why I'm the Gran Turismo winner. Uh, by the way, these are all real people. These are all this like, oh my Gran Turismo esports figures, like competitive mm. Gran Turismo people. Um, and so like the end of this is just all these fucking random headshots congratulating you <laughs> yeah. on winning and then showing. There's like a little cake uh, now. Now there's a cake back here. There's a cake. Strawberries uh, you know, on it. They prepared it for you to, to celebrate. And then uh, the only woman in the game, uh, Sarah, comes along as basically your assistant to explain the game. Because I remember when I met you at the used car lot. I remember it like it was yesterday. Well, it wasn't yesterday, but it was only like two months ago because this game isn't that long. So like it was very recent, Sarah. Uh, But she mentions, you know, the way it ends is just (laughs) the words Gran Turismo. Mean, I think you've earned a little break. Yeah. Oh, that's so fucking funny. This is incredible. It's it's an incredible. (laughs) That's the last last line. Mm -hmm. The words Gran Turismo mean Grand Tour. (laughs) This feels like wake up, wake up, Rob. Wake up. (laughs) (laughs) It's time to go to school. (laughs) 
yeah, that's the, oh. dude. The whole and I hit this late at night. The whole thing did feel like, am I hallucinating? Am I dying? Am I like, am I about to wake up? Rob, and like, Rob's been in a coma this whole time. He thinks he's driving in the Gran Turismo. Yeah, in the hospital. Rob, don't blink us all away, Rob. <laughs> and so I, I do, I do just have to like the weirdness of this game and it's metal layer at times is, is really riveting uh, in places, but at the same time, like it is such a chill game to spend time. Uh, I went from being like, wow, this, this, this easy listening soundtrack is really corny too. This is one of the most relaxing, like spa like experiences. Uh, I, I can imagine just having this game on in the background. So gentle, so reassuring, but on top of that, it is one of the best like driving games I've ever played. And I've, I've, you know, I've talked about this before, but it is striking to me the degree to which you can feel uh, like driving dynamics that are recognizable from like when you drive cars in real life, but are you don't even think about their absence because racing games never really communicate them well. Like the feeling of weight transfer and like chassis is just not, these are not things that a driving game typically can communicate very effectively uh, at all, which is why frequently like one of the things that's tricky about a racing game is that you'll suddenly just break traction because you couldn't even feel the car loading up uh, to the point where you were sort of approaching the limit. And this game like communicates that perfectly uh, using a controller or a racing wheel. And so I think one of the things that makes this game so resting is that like, it feels like you are driving a bunch of different cars mm. in a way that like, there's a ton of games that offer that experience, you know, go buy a Ferrari, go buy, but they don't necessarily feel that distinct from one another. They certainly don't feel that convincing or with that much character. Gran Turismo 7 feels like so many of the cars are really lovingly portrayed. And this is as close as you're going to get in kind of a good way, though, to driving them. Because, like, it's closer than I've ever been before is is how a lot of this game feels. And, uh, abs- like, absolutely, uh, like, sort of took over my ear. And probably like I had to break myself of the of the habit uh, to to get away from it. But like it was it was a good summer uh, when I was just kind of every day, you know, booting up Gran Turismo 7, getting a few races in uh, and frequently winding the day down the same way. Nice. Ren, your Sig- number one. Signalis is my game of the year. Uh, Signalis is a horror game uh, that leans into the PSX aesthetic we've talked a little bit about uh, earlier in the show. And if you strip away all of the like incredible mechanical work happening in Signalis and all of the like beautiful aesthetics and everything else, Signalis at its core is a really arresting and tragic love story about two queer women. Uh, and the ways in which uh, bureaucracy and social systems isolate people and the ways in which we try and find connection with others in spite of that isolation and how that desperation can lead us to hurting the people we love. Uh, And 
it ends with a deep interrogation of what it means to care for someone who is hurting. Uh, and I love it so much. Um, I think it's mechanically excellent. I think that for all uh, people frustration, the frustrations people have with its limited inventory system, I think that it uses that inventory system to great ends, both as a puzzle I wish mechanic. The t- I wish the tool. I wish the tool didn't take up a slot. Though. That's know, like my one. That's my one. Yeah. Like I, I agree with you. I like that tension, <laughs> but I think the tool makes it just a like. You gave me a flashlight. And now I can't use that flashlight. You know, yeah, that's the one the one knock against it. Otherwise, I'm with you that I, I like that restriction. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it uses it to great ends of like, I have to make multiple passes through this place to get all of the puzzle objects I need to this well, end this destination. Also, geez, I, didn't, I did not quite, I don't know if we didn't go over it or I'd forgotten it, but I'm about halfway through the game, maybe a little further. I just went down to the mine. Like, that's mm-hmm. the yes. section that I'm headed to. You went down the first hole, the first big hole, first yeah, big yeah. evil hole. Yes, yes, that's the that's where I ended up, la- you know, stopped off last night. And the thing that is really, and I know you, you talked about this game as being like very Silent Hill, but the thing that is very Resident Evil about this game, very specifically the Resident Evil remake, um, is the, uh, oh, sh- uh, shit, what do they call the zombies in the remake? That they come back alive. The, um, the Crimson, Crimson Heads. Zombies. Crimson yeah. Heads, yes. And this takes this to, like... <laughs> An even worse degree, which is just that everything comes back and you have barely enough to like burn them and take care of bodies permanently. And like that creates such a stressful complication on navigating these spaces because you just don't know what is going to be the time. I don't know how the game is tracking this. Is it time based? Is it it the time that I go through a hallway and it's like a, a number that's going up in the background that I don't know? Is it random? I don't know, um, but it creates where it's like, I'm just, I've used my burn marks on the left-hand side. And so even though it's going to add a couple extra minutes every single time, I'm just going to always go the long way around the left <laughs> yeah. so that I can get to what I need to do. And then the tension becomes, and this is, speaks to the inventory management. Eventually that gets annoying. And that's when I will find myself using additional resources where it, it pulls at the thing that happens in all of these games, which is you end of the game with too much stuff. And I'm clearly already going to end this game with too much stuff. I've been too conservative. I have too much ammunition. That's fine. But uh, there are times where, man, they put that one spot over there where I can't use my loop anymore. And now I've got to go through this bathroom that had like four or five people in it. And now I got to lay waste to them and hope that the two or three times I come back to this room to accomplish this puzzle Three of them don't spring up and eat, eat me. Um, and that that stuff, it's I, I am not deep enough to really appreciate the love story quite yet. I'm mo- mostly still in the like learning what's happening like broadly and then appreciating it as a survival horror game. But it is an exceptional in that regard as well. Yeah. And I also think that like one of my favorite things about it um one is that like oftentimes there were there were bullets I could see on the ground and I had more important shit to carry. Mm-hmm. And that is such a cool feeling of being like, ah, oh, man, because I ended the game with virtually no ammo. I, I finished Signalis with I was on the last rounds of my pistol uh, in the final boss fight because there were times where I was just like moving through spaces and I was like, I'm not I can't pick up that ammo. I don't have time and I do not have like the resources, the inventory space to pick yeah. up that ammunition because I want to move through this space in the way that I am. And it creates this really cool sense of tension, right? The other thing is that its puzzle design 
in a way that I think is this, this is where I, I pull in the Silent Hill example is where I think that like Resident Evil games, their puzzle design is famously uh, obtuse and like divested uh, or, or separated from the actual locations they take place in. Right. Also logic. Yeah. And logic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, logic, both in terms of like, do the puzzles make sense? And also, does it uh, make yeah, sense? I think those Billy the Billy O'Bald thing made total sense to me. I, know, I was, mm-hmm. I was just watching while you and Rob. <laughs> Silent Hill also has this, right? But I think the difference is that Signalis is closer to Silent Hill and that its puzzles are so deeply tied to the lives and spaces that the game is focused on. Um, one of my favorite things about Signalis is that like, is it a game obsessed with getting the right key card to open a given door? Yes, it is. Do I think that is very frequently a bad or uninteresting design decision for a puzzle? Yes. Do I think that it's bad in Signalis? No, because at its core, again, Signalis is about people navigating systems that do not care about them and navigating weird bureaucracies. And like the process of being like, oh, fuck, I grabbed the wrong key card to get through this space really draws attention to the way in which the society that these characters emerged from is built around procedure and the instrumentalization of people. And now that you're moving through it, removed from that, um, the actual like function of the system, you then have to move through this world that is built around instrumentalization of people, but there are no people to instrumentalize anymore. And so you're just moving through this system that does not make sense because it wasn't built for you. It was built for a very particular end. And the way in which the game melds that puzzle design and its world building and its architecture to combine with its narrative is just, it's incredible to me. Uh, I ended up really, really loving it. Uh, And so glad I also played the first two Silent Hill games this year because they acted as the key for me to be able to understand a lot of the interesting narrative work that Signalis was doing. And Signalis acted as a key for me to look back at uh, Silent Hill 1 and 2 and really draw a lot of meaning from those games. Uh, I absolutely adore it. Excellent game. Excellent. I I ended up with kind of an inverse on on Patrick's amount of, or what Patrick is assuming he's going to end up with. I have, Mm -hmm. I had no ammo but a lot of burn materials. Yeah, uh, I think you've already hit it, so it's not a spoiler for you, but there's a boss where I started using burn materials. Did you get to that? The one with the big, the big uh, TV head? Yeah. No, no, oh. no. Wait, TV head? It's a big, it's a big one. And there's like, yeah. there's like ads um, basically. Yes. 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 I didn't know you could use, or you using that against the ads? Yes. Um, <laughs> to make them fucking stay down. <laughs> I didn't use them until I kind of came across like the big, taller, lanky. Oh God, that those are, too. God, those things are so fucking creepy. <laughs> yeah, love them. Uh, all right, Kato, your number one. Uh, my number one is uh, Norco. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> um, the. I think that this this one came out after Citizen Sleeper, right? I yes, feel like does. this this one was the one where I was like on board with Renz. This is the year of the narrative gamer. Like it really cinched me that something felt like it was in the air. Um 
between this, even if it, if it were only Citizen Sipu and Noka, I feel like this they had, they they had a little mini moment, but then you know eventually I I th- I include I include material club low. It's kind of weird, but I think it's still a, a, a narrative banger in my heart. And then Pentiment uh, at the end of the year to kind of round it out is like damn. We had a lot of good ones this year, um, but Norco the uh, adventure game about a uh, industrialized area, <laughs> uh, city, town, community, also factory, uh, <laughs> uh, environmental disaster, uh, Norco. You play as uh, um, a person coming okay. back from a long, uh, a long time away from home to uh, find your brother and kind of pick up after your mom has passed away and then also eventually you play as that mom and uh you kind of get this view of a town deeply affected by you know just the worst kinds of uh uh industrial uh uh what's the word i'm looking for not miss you uh like just lack of care for the environment and people uh and also a, 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 a string of characters that are all just so they a lot of them really ride a line between being archetypal and also deeply uh complex still like like they they are they are both a type of guy like I'm that type of guy, but then also still have an individual, like feel like they have an individualized history within this world and this, in this game that like really makes it kind of stand out. Mm. Um, just, uh, the dialogue's incredible. Yeah. Like it's like, so I, well I think it, even as, uh, the way it resolved, I, I don't like, I didn't dislike the ending, but I could have spent, five more hours back in the town before like that, that, that other part of the plot like kind of takes takes over Yeah, because the characters were just so alive and interesting. And like, I just could not get enough of the different interactions that, that occurred. And it was also a game that is surprise in the same way. Um, what was the other adventure game you were talking about before? The one with the surprising interactions. Um, Wait, what? Club Low. Oh, Club Low. Yeah, yeah. Right. This game, it's not as subversive in that way, but, you know, I mentioned this when we talked about the game, but there's a sequence with clown makeup that I, <laughs> is a top three oh, moment so um, good. in the game for me because you just don't expect the game's going to let you do this. And then it does. And it's played for a joke, but then also played extremely seriously. And empathetically like it's it's beautiful like, I, like, I was like i can't believe this little just jugglers you know what i mean yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's incredible i yeah. was blown away and that game is full of little moments like that where i think my 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 issues it's like less of an issue with, with the where the plot goes as much as i just could have spent it's like, i just could have like let's do some episodic norco like let's just go <laughs> give me another bullshit mystery around this town um because all i want to yeah, do follow someone is, else and is yeah learn about other people that are clearly around yeah. the corner and i just can't see them um and I, there was not a space i wanted to inhabit more time in more than than norco yeah. this year for sure i think 
even aside from specifically characters and world building and like the dialogue itself, it did some really great uh, uh, stuff with like the visual frame and its visual language. And when it decided to change what its visual language was, um, there are different sequences that really play up uh, what you can and can't see. There's a lot of kind of dreamlike sequence. Like I would, I would characterize it as like magical realism, essentially. Like it, it yeah. is playing in both dream spaces and also just like a, a, a space that I feel like games can go in, in such a visceral way that they, they should go more often. I think like I want more games to do the sort of weird perspective, perspective shifts and, and tricks that Norco, de- Norco does to like really drive home how, the the synthesis of like dialogue written word and and visual like language that can that game that only that only games can really do right um it's just amazing amazing work and like probably the shortest game on my list and like you know it's it's that that meme like i want shorter games made by fewer people who are less stressed <laughs> or whatever uh and I mean it. <laughs> my interview with Yutz is one of my favorite things I've done this year. The fact that this is his debut game is absolutely astounding. Uh, this is his debut game. This is his debut as a writer. Uh, it is it is true or close to his debut game. Of course, he's made side projects before, but like this is it. And like, it, it's incredible. I mean, the, I have been thinking about the thing that was said to me during an interview since it happened. When he described the South as a hyper-mediated marketplace of disaster, that changed the way I thought about spaces, fundamentally. And that is what Norco is about, is understanding the South as a hyper-mediated marketplace of disaster, both in terms of exploiting disaster on the economic level, but also on the personal level and the, um, you know, cultural level. It is an incredibly, incredibly made game. Um, and just like, it, it is a marvel to me. And my number one game of the year is Neon White. Um, a first person kind of card based, but it, the cards are really just weapons <laughs> you pick up in the environment and they look cool. But uh, no game this year like this game at a certain point became so fast paced and frenetic that I had to stop. I not had to, I couldn't process what I was doing. I was just doing, um, (laughs) it is very rare for a game to put me in mental state, flow state, however you want to categorize it, where you are just acting. It is 20 hours of play and understanding of mechanics and the only reason you're going to accomplish what's in front of you is because you just do what you have been trained to do based on instinct you are no longer thinking about it you are just doing and achieving that in neon white was when that would happen you would sort of like i would set the steam deck down or when i transitioned to keyboard and mouse because the 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 analog sticks on the steam deck became untenable for for finishing the back half of the game uh was transcendent um i just very rarely does a game 
make me feel that way. Uh, and it's the kind of thing I'm always chasing as somebody that loves platformers specifically is probably my favorite genre. Um, I love games about movement and there was no game that handled moving better than neon white. Uh, and the highs of that uh, game were so high that, uh, I, I'm constantly think of going of going back to it just because nothing else made me feel quite that way. And that is our games of the year. We are not going to do the categories <laughs> we submitted today. We will return to them because people were very kind and sent them in. And we will do that as a way of easing ourselves back into the new year. We'll run through uh, a bunch of these categories that that people submitted. Um as a way of kind of looking back at the year that was, even as we move this, into the, the new one. Is this one podcast or two? That's up to you. We're Kyle. rounding uh, the four hour mark here. I feel I like think, we maybe need to split it, but I don't know. Just even people, for, for I, file size reasons, we might need to make it two. Oh, people's phones are people's phones are big these days. <laughs> I mean, is there nothing more waypoint than to give people the longest of run time? That's true. In the year, that's true. Five star podcast, five star run time. I thought we don't we make more money. Do I don't know if we make that much more money by splitting it in two. Like I don't think that like that's no. not the motivation. If anything, I, all we're all we're doing is giving us an extra day to not have to record the next podcast when we come back. But mm-hmm. five star. I mean, yeah, it's the thirtieth. That's given the the most five star run time of. I think of, that's the most waypoint thing of, to do. of of the um, year. <laughs> But before we go, and unfortunately don't get to do things like best goblin mode game, but don't worry, oh, we'll shit. get there. We'll come back. Oh, um, I, 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 like many others, had a quick, like, had, I, like, the way I do this is, like, I keep a note of all the games I played significant time of throughout the year. That's smart. Then I, then I pull <laughs> I out, I, I've been doing, doing it for, that. like, ten years now. Um, it's a really fun list <laughs> I should, of I should do that. Um, huh. I should do that. I picked that. it up oh, from. Cool, cool idea, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, well, I, that's credit to Steven Totillo. That was something he did, and I was like, that's really smart. And it helps me just remember the games I played earlier in the year. Yeah. So I, like, I picked, I ended up picking, like, 22 or something like that, and then whittled that down to, to the 10. And so just wanted to quickly shout out uh, the rest of the games really fast. God of War Ragnarok, which I really liked, but I just think it's more of what I've already played, and... I like that, but it just didn't didn't feel like it cracked the top 10. Also, I didn't finish it. Steam Deck fundamentally changed the way I play video games and the kinds of games I can play. Uh, like, it's not a game, but I fucking love that thing. <laughs> Scorn, a game that is beautiful, disgusting, was not very fun to play. Almost made the list by how disgusting it was. Immortality, we already talked about it. Sin Sleeper, we talked about it. Kingsfield for the Ancient City. If this was a lesser year for games, oh it would have gotten on there because... Damn, it's cool oh. to go back and see From Software has been doing the shit that people are just credit to Souls long before that. Yeah. Below the Ocean, really cool uh, 2D uh, uh, Metroid uh, uh, it's kind of a puzzle game. Uh, go check that out. Ghostwire Tokyo, beautiful, not that fun to play. Power Wash Simulator, that was just good times with Rob. Enjoyed that time. We'll have to get back to that sometime next year. Rollerdrome, the, it basically got knocked off for the same reason I love Neon White. That game would have been a two or a three, and it was just. I'm already putting a game that is so mechanics heavy. So just got down to the to the highlight reel. Stray, cute cat. Mm, story really fell apart in the back half. <laughs> Tiny Kin, uh, game that was just delightful. Just massaged my brain, and that was kind of it. And then Signalis, a game that will probably be one of my favorite games of December 23rd, uh, 2022. <laughs> um, anyone else? Uh, I got a list they want to run through really quick. Yeah, I could. Uh, or you, you could go, go ahead. ahead. No, please, Kato. Um, 
Yeah, I, I'll do the quick the ones that didn't the ones that didn't actually overlap with anybody else. Um, Gundam Evolution, uh, Gundam's yeah. Overwatch, which is a really good game, but like it's only an, I don't know, it wasn't so spectacular that it could bust through top ten. Like it has to be really spectacular as a multiplayer game to bust into my top ten. Um, Stacklands, which was a uh, cute card game from Sock Pop, who uh, make like games like on a monthly basis um but this was there like stack different cards together to make uh it's kind of like a civilization sim uh in a way i played it very much earlier in the year um card cowboy which was uh later uh, more recently which was the um uh what if um instead of fighting battles you were using your cards in um uh, slay the spire to make your way through a western and the cards were all funny that that was uh that was a good time um unexplored to the wayfarer's legacy uh which is earlier this year the roguelike the the follow-up to unexplored obviously um that had a sort of uh world um uh uh you know history um uh, motif added to the roguelike uh stuff that they had done in the first game um and um uh, this one is one I haven't actually talked about in the podcast yet because I did I played it pretty recently. But it was called Lunis Lunistice Lunistis. I don't actually know how to pronounce this game, um, but it's a uh, a, a fast paced three uh, um, D platformer that I saw people talking about around the time that um, uh, Sonic Frontiers was coming out, and they're like. This is a better Sonic game than Sonic Frontiers. And I played a bit of it. And I'm like, you know what? Actually, this is a super solid 3D platformer. Um, I didn't uh, end up finishing it, though. But it's it was really fun with the like hour or two that I played of it. Um, and then, of course, uh, things that other people talked about, talked about already uh, that I didn't get enough time in, but I, I, I want to, were Pentiment and Marvel's Midnight Suns. That I, like, I touched enough to be like... They might have crossed craft uh uh cross top ten if I had if I had they had come out at different times <laughs> that didn't get them knocked out by something else coming out that I was more excited for just generally, but probably the twenty twenty three games of twenty twenty two in the making there. Run. Pillars of Eternity, Rain World, <laughs> Hunt Showdown, Dragon's Dogma, Dark Arisen. Cruelty Squad, oh, nice. Battletech 3062, We Know the Devil and Heaven Will Be Mine, Silent Hill, Silent Hill 2, Road Warden. Nice. Uh, <laughs> for me, uh, things that narrowly didn't make my list, uh, like Citizen Sleeper was up there, didn't quite make it, uh, but enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, Grid Legends, FMV racing game with fake documentary right. interviews. Yeah. God, we need more of that energy in the world. Uh, also, stuff from last year that just didn't make the list, but like was really good. And if I'd played it more last year, I would have talked about it more at the end of last year. Uh, Grand Tactician Civil War, which I streamed a bunch of. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy, just a terrific superhero game with with incredible like hanging out with the squad uh, vibes. And Game of the Winter in early 2022, uh, High Fleet. Uh, oh my what god a, what a fucking game what yeah. a what a strategy Woo! game uh absolutely came out in absolutely immaculate though. vibes 
Yeah, it? it's it's old, okay. but it it still feels so fresh. Uh, and 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 was still, that, if you haven't played it, it's worth checking out. This year when we played it. It yes, it was. Yeah, oh it was God. right before I got hired because I remember watching a Waypoint stream of y'all playing it and me being like, God damn, I gotta pick up High Fleet. This shit looks cool. And then uh, I think it was a few weeks later after that that I got the uh, I got the call. Amazing. The, uh, the, yeah, it was a, that was a message. Time? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that that's uh, those are those are my shout outs. Uh, and probably, you know, <laughs> The go- what's the best goblin mode game? I think I'm gonna have a much better answer after the break. Yeah, I'll, we're, I'm we're be, all I'm about to go goblin mode, aren't we? I'm gonna <laughs> investigate goblin mode gaming extensively. You know, I, I have one I forgot. One that we will one uh, a game that we'll bring into the new year as a as a as a team. A final shout out to Final Fantasy Tactics. <laughs> <laughs> a game we yes. will eventually play. Right after Ren's got a head start because she's smart. <laughs> right after we wrap System Shock oh my early God. next year, TBD. <laughs> Stay tuned. You know I'm that will do Let's it. Just take however long we want on these. Nobody said they yeah. had to be a month. Who said that? Oh my God, they can't be a month. That's that's evident. <laughs> that's impossible. Uh, anyway, we will we will leave it there. We're we're done. Uh, we are, we are now going into production and, uh, like shutting it all down mode, uh, for, for this year. Uh, we will be back with you in January. Uh, thanks for spending the year with us. Three days away from now, from when you're listening to it, listener, you'll, you'll hear from us so soon. It's possible we save the five-star runtimes for the lead, the time when they're least required. Really? It was give you know because people are doing like well I guess you're still holiday traveling. People yeah. are traveling. People a travel. Lot. I think I think and there's I also think there's also give- that day of like you get back home you're still off because you decided to come home early instead yeah. of coming home on the the day before you then you're just gonna veg you're gonna veg and listen to a podcast maybe that's what this is for that's what we're here for that's true we're thinking of you this entire time <laughs> like all your friends at the Gran Turismo Cafe. <laughs> We've just been waiting for you this entire time. Hola from from Lowell, Massachusetts. I'm Rob Zachney. Uh, anyway, that will do it for this year. Uh, thanks so much for for hanging out with us for this for this year. Thanks uh, to our subscribers who supported us on Waypoint Plus and everyone who uh, re-upped during the sale. And we can't wait to come back and do it all again uh, in 2023. Till then, fuck capitalism, go home, stay home, vacation, and be (laughs) at peace. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.